are listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? Come on in. Grab a beer. Grab me one of those Bear Republics out of the cooler. Grab a seat. We're going to sit down and chat with a friend of mine, um, a woman that I've known for a little while now, uh, someone that I think is mega talented. Uh, She is one of those artists that sort of crosses into all different categories of filmmaking and performing. Um, and uh, every time I see her work, I'm always astounded by how real it feels uh, and hilarious. Um, so I'm excited. We're going to be joined today by the amazing Hillary Smith. She's going to be uh, coming into the studio in a little bit. I'm recording this right before. Um, and uh, I can't wait to get nerdy about uh, where she comes from. I know she's a fellow New Englander with a last name like Smith. It's such a New England name. (laughs) So I can't wait to talk to you about that. And then just so you guys know the connection, I met Hillary because Hillary um, is with Rick Darge and they both uh, are a creative force together. They're a human force together. They uh, write and shoot really great sketches together. Um, And uh, I hope Hopefully, at some point in the future, I could put her in front of my lens because I think she's incredibly talented. Um, And with her experience working in the ad world, because she is a freelance writer, she has been an associate creative director for years. Um, She has great insight into how the ad world works, how hiring directors works for the ad world. She's done some pretty big commercials. Uh, So maybe we'll talk a little bit about that today. We'll see. We'll see how it flows. It's a Sunday. I'm in here recording Sunday morning. It's weird because it doing this makes it feel like a Monday. So, yeah, feels like a Monday now. <laughs> How are you guys? What's happening? Thank you, everybody, for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy, following the podcast and Love of the Process pod on Instagram. Um, if you guys have been following, you know that uh, we just did a contest with Indie Pro, Indie Pro Tools. And uh, big congrats to our winner, uh, sending out your stuff as we speak. And I told you, like, one of the cool things about the sponsors on this show is that we try to get you guys some free stuff, free gear. Um, and uh, make sure you sit through my ad reads because you never know, I might be announcing a new contest, which I'm trying to get off the ground right now. So, yeah, man. Let's see what else is going on before we get into it with Hillary. Um, have you guys seen the new Star Wars show, the Andor show? The Andor show. Mm, get your mouth to work, buddy. Um, look, I watched it. I posted about it. Uh, I could probably do a whole mini episode on it. Um, I really, really, really want to like this show because I love um, Diego. I love. Um, the creators of this show, it just falls into this thing that drives me nuts lately, which is the uh, drawing out of a narrative for streaming services to make it longer. And I know that this, because I posted about this and I got a lot of mixed responses from you guys on Instagram. Um, And I know that there's a lot of folks out there that are super Star Wars fans or people that just love that universe that are like, we don't care. Like, let's just set up a camera in the room in Star Wars and we'll walk someone, you know, walking, we'll watch someone walk through the room. You know, I I have no problem watching them do the same action three times, even though it slows down the narrative, you know, 
And maybe this is just me bitching, right? Maybe it's just me complaining. But I don't think so, dude. I think when I watch most streaming stuff these days, and there are outliers that are really great, and I feel like some creatives and some showrunners know how to spend their money wisely, know how to make locations interesting and exciting. Even if you are to reuse a location or be trapped in a location, there are episodes. There's a bottle episode in Sandman. Um, those of you who have seen it, there's a whole episode where I don't want to give anything away, but there's a bad guy in a diner and everything that happens in that diner. And that is an incredibly creative use of one location to save money. Same cast uh, for one spot. And they do such a really great job of making it feel fresh and scary and innovative. Um, so it can be done. I just feel like with a lot of the television stuff, it's quantity over quality, right? And so you're racing as a creative to get these shows. You're racing to finally be in a position to make it. And then you start to have to fill this content. And, you know, I'm sure they have, you know, uh, stuff that comes down from, you know, the, the top floors of whatever streaming service this is and going, this is great, but we need this to be, you know, 12 episodes, 10 episodes, nine episodes. And it's really a, a it's really a game of trying to grab your attention and keep you tuned in, right? To keep you coming back, keep you subscribing every month. So it doesn't behoove them to do well-crafted films. And I'm not saying they don't, but it's it behooves them more to do a drawn-out series, to do something that is a cliffhanger, to do something that just takes sweet time. But the big issue is there's an expectation for these shows to have feature quality above feature quality, especially if you're talking Star Wars above feature quality. I mean, the only reason why that show uh, exists or any of the Star Wars television stuff exists is because of that tech that John Favreau and the ILM folks developed the void stuff where they were able to uh, create these backgrounds in these universes without having to do blue screen or green screen replacement time-wise they just wouldn't be able to crank out episodes without that so I, that in itself is incredibly creative you know being able to instead of being shooting all these scenes in warehouses like you would see for any other show like go and look at all the uh marvel netflix stuff with daredevil it's like how many times are we on that rooftop how many times are we in this warehouse how many times are we doing this right um, but uh, they do such a great job with the volume, uh, actually enabling it to be desertscapes and all these different places. Really amazing technology, like really amazing technological advances. Um, but story-wise, is it though? You know, like you have a scene, spoilers, you have a scene in the new Star Wars bit where like the boyfriend is like doing something behind the girlfriend's back and he feels guilty about it. I wake up the next morning and he's on the chair feeling guilty and she rolls over and she's like, I could use a coffee. You know, this is Star Wars. I mean, I feel like that dialogue and that whole exchange is something that you'd see in Glee. You'd see in any other television program, like cut and paste lines of dialogue from everything else that we've seen. And with Star Wars, especially, there's room to do such crazy things. It's simple things. Like, instead of I'd like a cup of coffee, it'd be like, I'd like that morning drink that we have where we have to boil down a bunch of Muppet snails to get, you know, this caffeine. Like, do anything that's clever and interesting. That's kind of what that universe is built for. 
It's, it's, I, I get what they're doing. They're trying to make a show that's going to win them awards, quote unquote, trying to get a show that feels like a drama, but it's starting to feel too much like a television drama. It's starting to feel too much. And this is in the first few episodes. Might as well be lost, right? Might as well be any of these other shows. And so what's the difference? It's the same show with just a different outfit. Same show with like different skin on it. And I don't mind that. Mind you, I wouldn't mind that if everything that we're trying to get made right now, all the films, all the stuff have been having trouble being made right now because they claim that this is the world of streaming, that people don't want to see movies. People don't want to go to the theaters. People don't want to do that stuff. So then this is all that we get. We're not getting a lot of that really cool indie comedy movie stuff that was really well crafted from the 90s and the 2000s. We're not getting the indie action or the indie drama movies that we really liked. It's all being crafted out into series and stretched out into series. Walk into a room with a script that's 90 pages, 100 pages. And they're like, this is great. Can you make this 500 pages? (laughs) You know what I mean? And so you just, you start to feel it. And I'm sure not everybody feels it. And this show's for filmmakers. This show is for people that love cinema and are obsessed with cinema. And this is why I bring them up, is that uh, as we're sort of sitting here going like, uh, are we seeing anything new? Are we telling any new stories? Are we innovating anything? What are we doing here? What are we doing? I don't know. That's what I was thinking. I like the idea of the show. I like the aesthetics of the show. I wish that those first three episodes were the first 15, maybe 20 minutes of a film. I'd be totally down with that. It would be tighter. I cut. I'm an editor. You're you got a lot of you guys and girls are editors out there. You know, like you start drawing out these sequences and you go, do I really need to see that person flip three dead bodies or just flipping with the first dead body? Is that does that do it? And it saturates the mind more because you're not overseeing it. You're not seeing the same thing three different times. I don't know how many times on any of these shows you watch them and they go, okay, we got this whole desert set up. We built this thing. Stretch it out, man. Let's see him turn over three dead bodies. Well, let's see them walk through the jungle with their little stick out like seven fucking times. Same, same set, same thing, seven times. And each time you're shooting something, what you're supposed to be doing is revealing something new. Whether you're revealing something new in dialogue and story, or if you're revealing something new in character and how characters react and deal with things, the choices they make on screen. When I see this stuff, there there isn't a lot of that. There's just a whole lot of filler. And so then you're sort of sitting there going like, oh, did I get it? What, what, let's just get to the next episode. Let's get to the next episode. Let's get to the next episode. Do you guys feel that when you watch this? I don't know. Maybe I'm just old. I doubt it, though. <laughs> I kind of know what's going on. But anyway, um, let's not delay it any further. Hillary's on her way in. What are we at? Oh, she's going to be here any minute now. So... Uh, grab your noise-canceling headphones. Like I said, uh, crack open one of those Bear Republic beers. Nice ad placement, as you guys could tell. Um, and uh, you know the deal. Crank it to 11. Sit back, relax, and join me and Hillary on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process.
Hillary. Hi. Mike, hi. I'm so happy to have you here in the house today. It's so good to be here. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I know. I'm excited. Uh, I have been seeing your new stuff, your new film. Big congrats. Thank you. You have a staff pick for that? Yeah, we earned one, um, which was such an honor, but cool because it's benefiting people who have been affected by the overturning of Roe v. Wade. So it's not just a staff pick. It, it's uh, It'll really help the film get out there and hopefully reach some people and raise some money. So mm-hmm, yeah, I'm mm-hmm, excited. Mm-hmm. It's very cool. I thought you did a really great job on the piece. Thank you. Because you, because uh, I think we were talking when you were putting everything together and you were trying to get your production up and running. Mm-hmm. How was the whole process? How did it work? Um, well, so I worked on it with a group of advertising women who were passionate about the cause, and it was actually a creative partner that I work with. We came up with the idea. Mm-hmm. Um, we were just thinking around how can we raise awareness about how the overturning of Roe v. Wade is affecting people and what's mm-hmm. an interesting angle. Mm-hmm. And we came to it sort of through a process of elimination where we were saying, if it's unsafe to have unprotected sex and it's unsafe to have protected sex because not even contraceptives are 100% effective, mm-hmm. then what choice do we have left? And the only choice we have is to fuck ourselves. <laughs> Yes, yes. <laughs> so we said, let's make um, a product, a parody product and infomercial, mm-hmm. uh, a satirical infomercial that advertises this product that pretends to solve all your problems and sort of like, you know, you see on QVC and sure. in, in any of these infomercials, <laughs> it's these products that you don't really need, but they pretend to solve all your problems. So we, uh, it's, it, it's a dildo yeah. and we call it F yourself, um, because we weren't allowed to call it fuck yourself. So <laughs> it's this, uh, it starts out now that Roe v. Wade is overturned, um, it's time to swear off semen forever. <laughs> Introducing F yourself. Uh, the foolproof way to guarantee you'll never need an abortion or your money back. <laughs> what I loved about it was there was this sort of fantasy world that I painted while watching it going, can you imagine if all the women out there just sort of got together and went, you guys going to fuck us like this? No sex. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. would change the world. Like, I know. Literally. Every guy, I don't care who he is or like what sort of crazy pastor he comes from or some crazy church, he's going to hit a point where he's like... Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> totally. I mean, a question I have had is where are men in this conversation? Because it's not a one-way street. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Women don't get pregnant alone. Yeah. Is a line that I wrote and want to turn into something as well. Smart. Um, so we'll see if that, if that comes to pr- fruition, but, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's so true that that that's very motivating for mm-hmm, guys to get involved. Mm-hmm. Guys are very simple. <laughs> guys are very simple. It's like I get hungry, I need to have sex. It's very simplistic stuff. It's just and when you without getting too political on it, the overturning of that is just so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And and there aren't enough guys that are talking about it either where it's like I've needed 
to go to Planned Parenthood when I was younger. Like there have been situations where like you have a one night stand, you're with somebody, something happens, there's an accident that happens and the rest of your life, there's a decision that is going to be made for the rest of your life. And being able to have that resource there makes it a hell of a lot easier, makes it a hell of a lot easier to be able to process that stuff. So it isn't just like, it's not just the abortion thing. It's everything else. It's all the health benefits that have brought women that didn't have access to those health benefits. It's yeah. insane. And there are women who, in uh, situations involving sexual abuse, mm-hmm. they don't even have a say in the issue. It, it's something that happens to them. So that option should be available to everyone. The option of making a decision for what's best for your body And it's really incredible that these politicians think that we don't know what's best for our bodies. I don't even like, is that their, is that their platform? It's like women don't know what they're doing. That's part of it. Um, a lot of, it's usually religious leaning politicians that are against it. And there are some groups that say, you, you don't know, you might regret this later on. You're going to regret this later on. Let us help you. It's a very divisive issue, but yeah, um, I think that you know, it, in America, maternal mortality rates are the highest, I believe, hmm. in our country. Hmm. So, having a child, some groups say, well, you can put that child up for adoption. It's not so simple. Carrying a child is it. It can be dangerous, yeah, and especially if you don't have the health care and the resources to, yeah. Um, to support you. So, well, I mean, a lot of these folks are the same folks that don't want to offer healthcare for everybody. And so you get into that game where it's like, no, 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 you're supposed to have these people. You're supposed to create these, these children and then put them into a world where we already have a fucking water crisis. We already have everything else that's going on. Right. And so let's just do this because, you know, that's God's way. You know what I mean? And it's just like, haven't we sort of evolved beyond this point? You know? You would think. As a species, haven't we figured this out, you know? It just seems like the low-hanging fruit as far as, like, getting people on your side. Where it's like, oh, we're going to raise all your taxes and shit. But what we did do was mm-hmm. uh, we took care of this little problem over here. Well, in politics, it feels like the way that politicians often sway people is with social issues. Mm-hmm. And those are the issues that really... Um, get people heated and those are the issues that people feel really strongly about. So anyway, it's a whole thing, but I'm grateful to, um, as a writer, creative director to be able to, it's a real privilege to be able to make an idea that gives back and helps rather than just because typically we're making work that is selling a product. It's true. But to sell an idea. So just to kind of wrap up the film, we worked with a, a great director to bring it to life. Her name is Cinda Aga, and she's with Corner Shop TV. Give a shout to them. But she came up with this brilliant ending of you're you're on the the journey of watching this infomercial unfold, and then you hear this girl say, "Well, what about me?" And it cuts to a very young teen girl who's pregnant, and it just reveals the fact that this parody product isn't going to solve your issues. We're kind of fucked right now. Yeah. Um, so it, it leads people, it, 
it ends on the line, F yourself is the non-solution to the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Find real solutions or donate at fyourself.com. It's great. It's great because, you know, <laughs> we're creating content for such passive viewers anyway. So it's nice that it's not preachy. It's nice that it's smart. It's nice that it's clever. It's nice that it's funny. Yeah. And then you finish the piece and you're just like, right. You yeah. know what I mean? Like it, that, it accomplishes that really well, I think. Yeah, it straddles the line of... It was interesting to make it because we were playing a lot with tone mm -hmm. and creating something that is funny, but it's satirical. So it's making commentary. It's not just comedy for comedy's sake. It's it's commenting on this time in which we are living in this tough issue that so many people are dealing with right now. Mm -hmm. And that's my kind. Of, that's my favorite kind of work to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how long have you been writing? I've been writing from the, I found writing very early as a child. I remember just writing stories. Actually, the first story I ever wrote was in first grade. I think it was an assignment. <laughs> and I wrote this, we all had to write a book. And I wrote a book called The Mother Who Never Did Laundry. <laughs> okay, I'm fascinated. My mom was really, she was a PTA mom. She was great. Mm -hmm. She had things pulled together. But when it came to laundry, somehow there was always this never ending pile of laundry in our basement. And that image, that visual, I think it was disturbing to me as a child. Uh -huh. <laughs> so I chose to write my book about this. How old were you? I was seven. Oh my God. So you're already observing this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I was an aware child. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Yes. I've always been hyper aware of social dynamics and, um, and human behavior. Uh -huh. I've always found it fascinating. Uh -huh. um, so that probably led me to writing as well. What did your mom think of the book? She thought it was great. I remember <laughs> being in, in class because we had the parents in. Mm -hmm. And she was encouraging me to get up and, and read it. And I was too bashful. I was too afraid. I was very shy at that age. Yep. So I still regret it. I should have gotten up. I should have had... <laughs> Would have changed everything. <laughs> maybe. Because I, I also love performing on stage. Yes. Um, and maybe if I had pushed myself a little bit more. But anyway, I'm, I'm grateful for where I am. But So that was my first story. And then just remember writing other short stories. And then in high school, I had this English class where we had all these um, assignments. One was to write a series of vignettes. And I just really loved that process and mm -hmm. remember really enjoying it. And it's wild how much a teacher can affect the entire course of your life. Because yeah. my English teacher at the time said to me, I could see you writing for a fashion magazine one day. And I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. So that took me on this journey of applying to journalism school. Mm -hmm. I went to the SI Newhouse School of Communications at Syracuse. Okay. A lot of great journalists have come from there. So that I, I applied early decision and got in and went that path. Mm -hmm. Did you actually do journalism stuff or did you just transition right into advertising? I was in journalism for two years. It's a tough business. Yes, it is. I think it's also changed a lot over the years. Yeah. I was in school, I'm going to date myself here, but I started in my undergrad in 2006. Mm -hmm. And that was at the time where 
we were just starting to wake up to this idea of print potentially being dead. Yeah, this is a long death too. Yeah. Yeah. And the industry was starting to make that leap from print to digital and trying to navigate that space. Um, but something I really enjoyed writing and I loved my professors. I learned a lot, but I've always been a very visual person. Mm-hmm. I consider myself a very visual writer and, and also an art director in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. So halfway through school, I just got this itch that I needed to scratch and wanted to do something that would allow me to express myself more visually rather than just on the page okay. in written word form. So I switched into advertising sort of on a whim. It was another major available within the communication school. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because at the time that major was, and that profession was still very sexy. Um, It's really interesting, actually, if you go back and and watch movies, Mm -hmm. the cool profession in some older films is to be an advertising (laughs) creative director. So if you watch even... Kramer versus Kramer with Dustin Hoffman and Wall oh, yeah. Street. It's yeah. an amazing movie. I love it so much. But Dustin Hoffman is a creative director in that film. <laughs> um, there are numerous examples of this, but another one that comes to mind, it's a very brief mention in um, Manhattan Murder Mystery with Diane Keaton and Woody Allen. But I don't know if I've seen that one, actually. It's a good one. I yeah. know, you know, mentioning Woody is... Well, it's yeah. hard. You got to separate the artist, the artist from, the, from, from the person from in real the person, life. Yeah, for yeah. sure. One hundred percent. But in that film, Diane Keaton mentions briefly, Oh, I worked in an advertising agency. And, and it's funny because I'm pretty sure this was all before Mad Men came out. Mm-hmm. But then when Mad Men, Mad Men came out mm-hmm. that, um, that was like the, the ultimate sort of romancing of yes. the fifties male yeah. whiskey drinking, Mm-hmm. You know, all that stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. So then was advertising. <laughs> so when you went into advertising, did you feel that? Was that the game that you were getting into? Was this sort of sexy world of. Uh, it it was part of the allure. Yeah. But I quickly decided there was a management track that you could take or the creative track. And I almost, I switched into advertising with the intention of going the creative route but then decided it was a series of idea generating classes that you took mm-hmm. brainstorming classes, portfolio classes. And I just wanted to learn more about the business of it all. So I went the management track hmm. and then somehow decided I wanted to be a fashion stylist. I, I've as someone who has a diverse range of interests, it can be very confusing to decide how I should make money. Yes. Tell me about it. And make a living. <laughs> yeah. So um, what ended up happening was I started to put together my wardrobe styling portfolio through projects that I was working on on campus. I was working for some on-campus magazines, doing styling projects, things of that nature. But I just needed a job to get me to New York City. It was a very natural progression to go from Syracuse to the city. A lot Mm -hmm. of students end up moving there. And I knew that that's where I wanted to be. Mm -hmm. Partly because of movies. I mean, one of my favorite movies of all time is You've Got Mail. I love You've Got Mail. It's such a good one. I love What's that? That's uh, Nora Ephron, right? Yeah, she's my idol. 
she does i wanted to, by the way if if the universe is listening i'd love to get nora on the show because i love 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 her stuff man. she actually passed away did she yeah in oh, 2012 fuck i didn't realize that yeah i know too she went to she was too young it ah, was really that's tragic awful. that's awful she was incredible and had such i look up to her in so many ways i've read most of what she's written and um, her whole history, I mean, I could go into that. It's another tangent. But she's really fascinating as a person because she started out mainly as a journalist and a writer. Mm-hmm. And then she wrote, she started to write screenplays. She wrote Silkwood mm-hmm. for Mike Mike Nichols. And so yeah. she started to go on set and through being on set with Mike, learned how to direct. And that's eventually what led to her being able to direct You've Got Mail and... Um, there did she, did she direct she, Sleepless in Seattle, or was she? did she write that? I think she both wrote and directed that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, when Harry Met Sally, she wrote, but Rob Reiner directed that. I love that That's movie. one of the best movies of all time, I if love you ask that me. movie. That movie it's is incredible. so New York. Mm-hmm. It just is so New York. Exactly. So that yeah. that was part of the romance, watching movies like that. And, mm-hmm. and you've got me all there on the Upper West Side. And mm-hmm. I picture myself living on the Upper West Side. It's walking down those streets, going yeah. up like... The brownstone staircases and into the little bookshops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, it's so New York. I love New York. I, I lived there for a year, and I, I wanted that same vibe. Yes, which was like everything I saw in the movies. Yes, and I kind of had it. Not really. It was, <laughs> it was more like going like couch surfing from place to place and shooting movies, shooting student films in New York. A lot of fun. Mm-hmm. It's a great place. So textured, and then dealing with the New Yorkers is hysterical. There's so much to see and. I always say I'm a better writer when I'm in New York hmm. because inspiration is everywhere. Yeah. And you're really just at the mercy of the elements just by walking out your front door. <laughs> and I also think that we are um, telepathic. We are a telepathic species and mm-hmm. we don't talk about it enough, but I mean, we are all in each other's energy fields all the time. So I really think that just walking around I am tapping into people's energy fields and their thoughts and sort of picking up things that way, maybe through telepathy. Um, I buy that. Yeah. I buy that. And like, there's something fascinating about the personal space issues. (laughs) So like when you, when we're here, it's no big deal that we're like, you know, four feet from each other, three feet from each other. But when you're in New York, you're about 20 inches or not consistently. even yeah, I mean consistently. the trains depends on the time of year but sometimes the trains are so packed you're literally packed in like sardines you're yeah. rubbing it up against people you don't even know <laughs> it's wild <laughs> I went to film school in uh, Union Square and I remember I did you used to have to book out the edit rooms and this was back when you were cutting film so it was like on steam bags and so you would book them out for like 24-hour shifts and I was there cutting for like two days without sleep two days without sleep and i'm like i have to go shower like i had to go back and i was staying at this (laughs) i was staying in this apartment complex all the way on the upper east side and it was this older lady that was renting me a bed way too much money and she wanted it was before sex in the city but she was like sex in the city smoking cigarettes all the time she's like mike what are you doing (laughs) she'd come in the house and so she had the glasses and and so i was all the way down on 14th, wherever uh, Union is. And so I had to ride up and I was exhausted to the point where you start to see streaming colors, you know, mm-hmm. where you get that tired. And I get on the subway 
and apparently I pass out. Oh my gosh. So I'm on the subway and I pass out and I wake like 15 minutes later and I've got my head in this really gentle, like large black lady's lap and she's just stroking my hair. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just like, where am I? What's happening? <laughs> Only in New York. Yeah. That yeah, couldn't happen anyplace else. Yeah, it's crazy. So many fun stories in that city. I love that city. I love it too. I find that when you're there, it doesn't always feel as romantic as what you see in the movies, mm-hmm. but looking back, the story of it, the nostalgia that you have looking back, that feels like a movie. Well, New York beats the shit out of you. Like if you're yeah. if you're not busy in New York, like if you're like unemployed, if you're having some issues, New York will really run you through the ringer. Yeah, totally. But if it's like if you're there and you're working and you get projects and you get stuff going on, it's fucking exciting. It just like and it's weird. It's true. Like when you step, if you take a bus or a subway or a car and you step on that sidewalk, you step on that pavement, it feels different. Totally. It, it just vibrates. Yeah. And even if you have things going on, there's still a struggle mm-hmm. at the root of it all. It, it's a hard place to live, but that struggle is what fosters creativity. Mm-hmm. And that's why there's a long history of artists torturing themselves in different ways. <laughs> <laughs> it's a masochistic thing sometimes. It is. But, torture ourselves all the fucking time. Yeah, yeah. But you need that tension yeah. in order to feel inspired and come up with ideas. And that's yeah. sort of what this short film I just wrote and directed, not the one that we were talking about earlier, this other thing I'm working on, is about that tension that you need in life in order to feel an iota of happiness. Mm-hmm. So you can't be 100% happy. It's so it's so difficult to be truly happy, and maybe everybody doesn't feel that way. Maybe I'm just sick in the head, but I think we're both taking the same pills for that shit. Because yeah, like if I get too compliant, then I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? Exactly. And it's like I I need strife for creativity. This is something that I've I've said on the show with my therapy that I've been taking. My therapist is like, she she dropped a bomb on me a few months ago, and she was like. Does it occur to you? Have you thought about the fact that every time you do something creative, it is stimulated by frustration or anger? Yeah. And I was like, holy shit. That's like every artist. Not not every artist, but a lot of art comes from that place. Yeah. Like when I start getting mad about something, I was saying to Gina last night, when I get mad, I start firing in all cylinders and I'm just like, this is the fucking connection. And then you start figuring it out and you just, you, the adrenaline's running. And then when I'm trying to be chill, um, <laughs> I start to go like, what do I do with my life? Am I, am I yeah. creative or not? I don't have any good ideas. What are the good ideas that I have? Yeah. And that's the struggle with living in LA, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. I live in an area that's kind of set away from mm-hmm. commerce and humans. And I really miss that interaction with humans and and the struggle that you get sometimes living in a a place like New York because that's where the ideas come from so yeah sometimes things are I mean the weather is a reflection of sort of the ease yes that comes with being in LA yes it's weird and then everything's super chill everything's slow everything takes fucking forever yeah and you're like cool I'll wait another three weeks for that meeting yeah okay yeah. And then what do I do for those three weeks? Well, I'm waiting for that meeting. Then three weeks disappear and you're just like, I know. What did I do last month? But it's funny because I went back to New York in May for a visit. And typically when I go back, I feel that it's like hanging out with 
an old friend that you're no longer friends with and <laughs> and you miss them and and you want them you want them back but this time i really truly felt like i don't know if i can do this anymore um it was in may and i was expecting great weather and it was in the 40s and raining and it, oh, yeah. it really tested my patience you must have been freezing i was freezing my ass off i didn't pack enough and yeah oh yeah anyway but it's a great city but i think i feel like i've taken us on a tangent to finish my very long story about my meandering history Uh and my indecision my uh my inability to make a decision on which path to take um i ended up taking a job as an account manager working at gray new york Okay. Oh, gray. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So if anyone has watched Mad Men, I typically use the characters to Mm -hmm. paint a picture. So as an account person, I was like Peter Campbell. Mm Mm-hmm. Not not terrible like Peter Campbell though. Yeah, that 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 isn't part of that isn't part of the training process. No, no. <laughs> Here's no. how to run the books and deal with the clients and then be a piece of shit. Yeah, no, I I, I tried my best not to be a piece of shit. Um, but also in Mad Men, there's a character I think named Duck who worked for Gray. So Gray had been around for so long. I think 1918 was the year that it was founded. So when he worked there, there was a sense, this feeling of being part of this institution, this establishment, this piece of ad history Mm -hmm. that was really neat. And I was there during this little golden period of time where some good work was being made. And the chief creative officer was this guy, Tormiran, who now is the CMO at Apple. Mm -hmm. And it was just a really fun time, but day one, they were teaching me how to how to create a budget management report in Excel, and I was like, what the hell have I gotten myself into? Yeah. <laughs> this is not me. But at the same time, I was shopping around my wardrobe styling uh-huh. book and, and meeting with different people at magazines, hoping to get into the editorial department, which was sort of funny. I, I went to school with the objective of working for a fashion magazine and then ended up in advertising and then was trying to get back into magazines. And I can't tell you the number of interviews I went on at magazines and really interviewed with some really big publications with Hearst and Condé Nast and it just never worked out. And um, account management kind of, it's something that I could figure out how to do, but it never came so naturally to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I really had to, it was sort of a torturous process of crossing my T's and dotting my I's. I'm a very detail-oriented person, but I had to force my brain to work in this way that didn't come naturally to me. Yeah, Excel sheets are, you yeah. know. It's that, and then it's a lot of client management work. And yep. I love humans, I love people, but you have to be a true salesperson. And I think we all actually have to be salespeople as creatives as well. Mm-hmm. But it just was forcing me to work some some parts of my brain that <laughs> I was forcing it. So yeah, yeah. Um, a series of things occurred that made it impossible for me to be in the city anymore. I just sort of reached my wits end. And at the time I, well, I was friends with the entire creative department at Gray. And it was funny because I was one of the only account people that would hang out with them, but I always felt very at home in that that crowd of people. And there was one woman who I became close with, and I was doing a lot of personal writing at that time. Mm-hmm. And she read some of my writing and said, "You're a writer. What are you doing? Just go back to portfolio school." And 
in advertising, when you're in the creative department, you typically start as either a copywriter, mm-hmm. and I actually just prefer the term writer because we're writing. You're writing a diverse range of things. It's not just an ad headline. Yeah. Um, but you're either a writer or an art director. And a lot of people go to what is called portfolio school. And mm. the intention there is to create a portfolio filled with ads that demonstrate your ability to write a campaign. And mm. so you're essentially making fake ads, back mm-hmm. ads. Mm-hmm. Um, but I went to the Creative Circus, which sadly just shut down. It was around for, I don't know how many years, but it was, it's a school that a lot of great creatives have passed through and it holds a special place in a lot of people's hearts. A lot of people have met there and gotten married and had kids and (laughs) it was a great, it was a great place, but that was located in Atlanta. Atlanta. So I, I was in New York for three and a half years and then decided, okay, I have to do this thing. I, it's now or never, because if I just stay on this track of account management, I'm going to look back and regret, um, not taking the leap. Another thing I considered at the time, I started to do improv in New York and mm-hmm. I was very curious about stand-up comedy and I thought, you know, I could just quit my job and start waiting tables and and try to write on the side, but I don't know, something in my gut just pulled me to ad school in Atlanta. So I, I hopped down there, I was there for a year and eight months, mm-hmm. left the program a little early because I, ju- I got a job at an agency called 72 and Sunny. Cool. They have a few offices now, but they started in LA and I was hired out here and that's what moved me to LA. Mm. So I've been here for seven years mm-hmm. and through that process, um, I, and I did a bit of stand up in Atlanta actually, but through that process, I learned I really, I really love advertising, but I want to. Directing is really a focus for me right now, as well as acting. So, what is it about directing that's drawing you in? I've been in a lot of scenarios in advertising where, so typically the way that it works is as a creative team, you're you're coming up with a campaign and. Mm-hmm. A bunch of uh, creative reviews have to happen, and client approvals have to happen in order for something to get greenlit to get made. But say that you write a commercial and, and the clients are on board, and you want to make it. As creatives, you're looking for a director to bring that idea to life. I've been the guy that they've called for that stuff, so I know exactly. So yeah. you're, you've been on the receiving end, but and I really love the process of searching for the right director and going out to them, but. Typically, it's a, a triple bid situation where you're getting three different directors to treat on mm-hmm. a project, mm-hmm. and so they they write their how they would treat this commercial that you've written. And I've been in many scenarios where I felt like I really look up to this person. I love their work, but I would love to direct this. I want I want to take it to the finish line. Um, I've even had, and this person will remain unnamed, but I've had some creative directors, just one actually say to me, you know, the script doesn't have to be perfect because the director's just going to rewrite it anyway. And I've, I've felt like I don't want them to rewrite it. (laughs) I, I want it to be, I want to write it and I want to bring it to life and I want to direct the visuals and um, the shots and, and work with the DP and, and make the storyboards and all of that. So, it's something I've thought about for a really long time. And that that transition isn't uncommon. There are a number of ad creatives who have- A lot of them. Yeah, who've gone from the agency side to directing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's the traje- 
trajectory I'm on now and pursuing. Cool. Yeah. So you want to get into directing mostly ad stuff? Are you going to get into narrative stuff? What do you think? Both. Um, advertising is, I have a lot of complicated thoughts and feelings around it. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Because it's interesting. If you've read the book, The Artist's Way, have mm. you read that? No, I haven't. A lot of your listeners may have read it, but the author describes working in advertising as being a shadow artist, hmm. which I agree and disagree with. Um, it's I agree with it in the way that when you're making an ad, you're making it under the guise of or behind the behind the face of a company or a brand. Mm-hmm. So it's not just you, the artist, making the piece. But I disagree with it in the way that advertising is still an avenue for communicating an idea, mm-hmm. an idea that is meant to resonate with people and and tap into culture. And the reason why we love the ads that we do is because for, for the most part, they're relatable. Yeah. In the same way that stand-up comics write material that is relatable and that's why we laugh at it because it all speaks to a human truth. So I think it's a really fun industry in a lot of ways when you're allowed to make good work. Mm-hmm. I think it's harder than ever to make good advertising today for a variety of reasons. Part of that is attributed to the fragmentation of media, the ways in which technology has changed. Now we're asked to make six second ads. You can't really convey a concept and an idea in, in six seconds. It's crazy. It's crazy. So yeah, it's, it's really changing. And I think clients have never been so afraid to draw a line in the sand and say something. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. A lot of advertising these days prioritizes style over substance. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you run the risk of saying nothing and, Everything visually, not everything, I don't want to generalize, but so many things are starting to meld together Yeah, that it's difficult to really stand out from the crowd. So something that interests me, I'm trying to answer the question that you originally asked, but something that interests me is doing work that, this is a bit of a tangent, but doing work and writing work and directing work that shocks people because I think that's really the only way to stand out. Yeah, yeah, right. Right. But I, so all this to say, advertising can be really interesting to me as an art form, Mm -hmm. but I'm also interested. I've always wanted to write a film. Like I said, Nora has always been my idol. And I initially idolized her for her writing, but then, and she's on my bedside table and I have all her books and I'll, (laughs) I'll go back and reread some of her essays and I just, I love her so much. And I, I didn't think early on about the way in which she ended up becoming a director. I didn't idolize her for the fact that she became a director. I idolized her for the way in which she wrote. And now it's funny to see how the universe has sort of led me on this journey to directing Mm -hmm. without me fully ever intending for it to. I didn't think that I would ever live in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. I was just sort of brought out here and led here. Um, So I, yeah, I just wrote and directed a short film. It's called What's Wrong. Mm -hmm. I am working on it now. How's it going? It's good. It's definitely in, it's 
baby phase of the edit process. How's the edit process for you? It's good. I, I'm working with a really great editor. Um, and I thought about editing it myself, but I, Rick was encouraging, my boyfriend Rick was encouraging me to edit it. I've edited some of my own projects and, and through advertising, actually what's interesting is that as a creative, it's like a mini boot camp mm-hmm. for becoming a director. For sure. Because during the post-production process, what often happens is a director will sit with the edit for the first round. He'll go in mm-hmm. and be with the editor and they'll they'll work on it. But then typically, in America at least, it's a bit different in Europe where the director will often see the edit through to fruition. But in America, oftentimes, the director is handing off the edit to the agency creatives. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite things always has been to sit in the edit bay and work with the editor and and a phrase I, I often say is just get me to the edit because it it's so cozy. I just love yeah. that process. <laughs> it is. It's one of my favorite processes as well because it's, it's, it's really where the storytelling happens. Yeah. I mean, everything else that you're doing, you're trying to <laughs> create these sort of like personal human experiments and seeing if like an individual interacts with the individual in the way that you thought that they were going to interact with them. And then you're out there with like, I think I'm going to use this light and this gear. And the theory is, is that this is going to look really cool. And then you're just <laughs> constantly feeling a sense of rejection. And like, you're just like, okay, so that didn't work out the way I thought it would. Yeah. And so then you're stacking this bin of clips, you know, and, you know, experience, because I spent a lot of time directing for commercials and shit and advertising. And experience, as an editor, you sit there and you go, just get more footage, get more footage, get more footage. Because you know, when you get into the edit room, everything changes. No one gives a shit about totally. how you did it on set. No one cares about what was going on in the day. You have these clips. What can I? What kind of sandwich can I make with these leftover clips that exactly. I have? Exactly. And that's what you're doing. It's sort of a scary process in that way. Because you have a vision going into the thing and then you see the reality of it in the edit room. Um, But I I thought about editing this film and I said to Rick, I want to like my movie. (laughs) Okay. So I I felt that. and, And I truly believe that for the true editor brains out there, Mm -hmm. it's incredible what what a great editor can do. And I would rather put that responsibility in the hands of someone who dedicates their life to that. Yes. So um, we're working on it now, Mm -hmm. um, but I have a really, I won't give away too many details, but I have a really amazing friend who has agreed to do the music for it, which I'm so excited for. Um, Not sure how much music we'll use. It's, it's a dark comedy. How long is the piece? It'll be about five minutes. Yep. So it's definitely short. That's great. But, I'm used to making things that are 30 or 60 seconds so long. A, this is a long format. So for you. it's longer for me. And yeah, yeah. and the sketches that I've made and filmed and co-directed with Rick or directed myself, those have usually been 60 seconds or up to two and a half minutes. Um, I directed and wrote this short a couple of years ago. It was very simple, but it's called We Should Really Hang Out. <laughs> and it's inspired by that thing that you do, especially in LA where you see someone and you say, Oh my God, we should hang out. I've seen this one. Yes. Oh my God. But then how often do you, 
actually meet it and then drives me nuts. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> there's a lot of flakiness in the city, so it, it's inspired by that. So if you go to my Instagram and you go to the you have to go to the reels page of my Instagram to find the full thing. That's like two and a half minutes. But yeah, I this is the longest piece that I've directed and written myself. Um and but I, I have ambitions of one day making a feature. But what's so cool about a short concept or a short film or an ad is that you can convey an idea in a, in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And it sort of reminds me of poetry and the reason why I've enjoyed writing mm. some poetry in my life. Mm. It's just conveying one idea in a succinct way. And I, I really enjoy that. I mean, it's useful too, because <clears throat> if you're doing the feature the right way, it's, it's just a series of these moments that are mm -hmm. strung together to form a larger narrative. But exactly. You, like it, I'm about to do a, a small piece in the next couple of weeks, which is just a very simple little moment. And I'm obsessed with j creating a moment that I can watch and feel like it's a movie. And yeah. like, cause it's fucking hard mm -hmm. to do that. It's really difficult as the creator to get lost in a performance, get lost in a moment. It's very difficult. And we, we live in a time period where, you know, everybody's like, you shoot it with your phone or it's all gear and gear centric. And like, do you have the new Alexa? Who gives a fuck? Like at the, at the end of the day, it's like, can I take a locked off camera shot and bring a, an actor into that, that environment mm -hmm. and feel it and yeah. believe that it's a space and believe that it's a place. Yeah. That stuff is the cool stuff. And if you, if you can get those skills and you're smart doing it for shorts, because if you, build that confidence and build those skills and build the ability to communicate with an editor and build the ability to communicate with your crew and, and uh, be able to articulate these crazy fucking ideas that come in your brain. Um, all those skills are just what you fall back on. It's that I haven't talked about it on the show in a while. It's the toolkit that you have of mm -hmm. experience so that when you, <laughs> when you are fucked and you're on set and everything's going to shit, you're just like, I know because of my time in the edit room and doing all these little pieces that we should get coverage here and that should be this and that should be that and that'll save my ass. This piece isn't coming together necessarily the way I want it to here, but we'll be able to build it in the cut. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I'm really grateful for the all the experiences that have come before this it's hard not to look at some younger directors and feel like why did i not have the vision that they had at such a young age and and it's easy to play the comparison game but yeah but also you then you go do that you go further down the hole yeah exactly. why isn't my dad the owner of this company why why am i not the daughter of you know this actress that exactly. suddenly gets the ability like who gives a fuck about it? yeah and the, the the thing that i'm trying to to wrap my head around being in my 40s what am i 44 now so being in my 40s it's like what difference does it make if i make a movie now or if i make a movie when i'm 80 exactly it doesn't no it doesn't make a difference. And and this this urgency that we've had for so long to be on the grind and to be, fuck, I'm supposed to be doing this. I'm supposed to be doing that. And, and whenever I, back when I used to run a production company and we would do stuff for commercials and we would hit a period of time where it was a lull, you know, and it's like, just say yes to whatever fucking job comes in. And that was the, the game that we did. Yeah. And it was miserable. Yeah. It was miserable. You have all these these commercials coming in that you don't really fit for. Mm -hmm. You know, you're you're trying to bullshit your way through you, you, the creative team and say, yeah, 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 we can do that. And then you do it. You do it half-assed, and, and and in the back end of it, you're like, why am I fucking doing this stuff? Yeah, 
It's it's difficult because we live in a society, a capitalist society, where we are forced to make money to survive and make money in certain ways. And I think, you know, in, in other countries, it's different places like France. But I really believe that in America, if you're an artist and you're contributing to culture, the government should... Mm-hmm. compensate us for that mm-hmm. for contributing to culture we uh, it's it's really interesting so i mean back to your question about do you want to do just commercial directing or mm-hmm. or narrative based work i need to make a living and and so that's where the commercial <laughs> the commercial work comes in but also i i think it's fun and i think it's neat how you can um make something so quickly Mm-hmm. in advertising or, or by doing even a short film, whereas making a, a feature is, it's Years. the long game. Years. Yeah. And I've heard so many people. Years. I know, yeah. I, I've heard you talk about it and Rick talk about it, about yeah. the what it takes yeah. to get that thing yeah, made. Yeah, the, the mental struggle. That's why I have a yeah. therapist. It's just specifically because of the business. <laughs> I feel like business. there are a lot of therapists out there uh, yeah. talking to people about specifically, yeah, the process of making a feature-length film. Yes, the, the process of being okay with the fact that yeah. it's taking so fucking long. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, there's something really nice about the short form format, and I've always loved. Uh, cutting the short format and playing with the short format. Gina does a lot of stuff with the short format stuff. I love cutting that. It's just, there's something really fun about diving in to tone, Mm -hmm. you know, and just playing in that tone sandbox. And I think that a lot of the content, and this is me just sort of ranting about it, but I think a lot of the content that we're seeing right now is so writer heavy which i think is important i think it's important to have a a solid script and a solid plan and to go Mm -hmm. through that but it's so writer centric these days that tone is kind of yes television is fucking the writer's game okay 100 percent. like directors are directors are, are day players and they have absolutely no control unless you're a director that's coming from a feature world that you already have a uh, reputation for but when you come in to direct for like one of these television shows you're just there to deal I with the talent. I agree that TV is a writer's game, but I feel like I've seen a number of films where yes. story is sacrificed for style and look. That's true. Sort of like what I was saying about some ads these days where the writing isn't there. The the visuals and the art direction, mm-hmm. that looks great. But again, if it's all blending together and it's all doing the... Edgar Wright thing or sure there are a few uh commercial directors that pioneered this certain wide lens <laughs> style that you see a lot of other people replicating and um it feels like yeah advertising and and, and some features really sure. do focus on the style and as someone I am at the end of the day I consider myself a writer, creative director, director, actor, but I'm an ideas person mm-hmm. and concept is king. So if the concept isn't clear and worked out, concept could be a synonym for story, then I have no interest. Mm-hmm. I get that. Although I, I will get lost in Criterion Channel and I'll get lost in like, 
tone and vibe. I've been watching a lot of uh, uh, old Japanese noir lately, mm. and it's fucking just fascinating. And it isn't, it's not style or it's not like people are, you know, using drones or using the newest fucking tech. I mean, these, these directors are using the language of cinema mm -hmm. to actually tell an emotional story. And oftentimes yeah. it's, without dialogue and the dialogue is so secondary on a lot of these pieces and you watch them and you're just right. like completely enthralled with it. Well, in dialogue, writing isn't just dialogue. Writing is... Lazy writing is just dialogue. Right, exactly. Yes. And sometimes, well, I don't know if I always agree with that, if, if I always agree with that statement because my tone and the way that I write, even the thing that I just directed, what's mm -hmm. wrong, it's heavily dialogue but there's something in the way that I wrote it. There's a wit yeah. that requires dialogue. Um, I think dialogue can be really great if it's well done. Mm -hmm. I'm not giving myself that compliment. I'm saying people like Nora Ephron. She mm -hmm. wrote incredible dialogue. That was just so clever. Um, but yeah, writing is also writing scenes and, and writing moments that maybe don't have any dialogue. Exactly. And, um, but then it also comes down because it also comes down to what happens between the two actors on set. Right. And, and improvisation is always a, a great thing to see happen. Mm -hmm. There's a, there's a sense of, of growth and discovery with improvisation, which is really, really fascinating. I think at the end of the day, I don't want to shit talk any of it. I think it, each of these elements, whether you're talking about the dialogue, the writing, mm -hmm. if you're talking about the wardrobe, if you're talking about the locations management, mm -hmm. like each one of these elements are just tools for the larger piece. And at the end of yeah. the day, what I try to do and what I like about Nora Ephron stuff is I identify and I fall in love with the characters. Yeah. Like, and it isn't because I'm listening to their dialogue. It's not because mm -hmm. I'm fascinated with what angle lens. Most of the time when I'm watching Nora stuff, I'm not even thinking about the technical stuff. I'm not thinking mm -hmm. about how they shot it. Right. Who gives a shit how they shot it? It's just, mm -hmm. I'm falling in love with Meg Ryan. I'm falling in love right. with Tom Hanks. I'm falling in love with these moments. And oftentimes that's the music. That's all sorts of different things. Oh, yeah. that are, that's what's so cool about the process of filmmaking because yeah. It leans on so many different mediums to make something wonderful and great. And it's such a collaborative experience. And what interests me about directing is directing is like being a creative director. You are creative directing mm -hmm. the film. You're working with all the different department heads to um, make something great. So yeah, it's not just photography. It's not just music. It's all those things. And um, yeah. I've played the game with myself of trying to decide what's most important to me. Is it the cinematography? Is it the production design? Is it the music? I'm like, no, actually, it's all those things. All yeah. those things. Yeah. And and that comes down to a scene by scene basis. What is important about this scene? Yeah. Like, what am I doing in this moment? Yeah. This moment's going to be carried by the music. I know it is. Mm -hmm. This moment's going to be carried by silence. Mm -hmm. It's going to be locked off on a tripod. No one's going to know what the fuck I'm shooting with. And it's just focused on your face as an actor. And in that moment, that's the connection. Yeah. Yeah. This is something I discovered doing music videos for years. And I've, I've said this on the show a couple of times. Um, I used to write ideas for smaller acts that were very sort of cinematic and locked off. So mm -hmm. it was like you show up. 
I'm going to do this low angle of you. You're going to, you're going to stand up into the shot. You're going to pick up that guitar and that light's going to come up behind you and you're going to fucking Axl Rose your way or slash your way through this solo. Okay, great. Set up the thing, put it all there, sit at the monitor and I watch. They come out and I just look at it and I go, this is fucking terrible. <laughs> and, you know, and I see it. I go, why is this so bad? Yeah. And I'm like, can we do that again? And I'm like, maybe we got to change the lens. Maybe the light's not right. So I change the light, shift the light, change the lens. And we go again. It's fucking awful. And, it, and it, you know it's bad when like someone else comes up to you. Like the guy pulling focus is like, this is shit. <laughs> you had that happen? <laughs> oh, yeah. Because most of my <laughs> friends are friends that are doing it. And they're just like, this is terrible. And they're like, I know, it's fucking awful. And so then you're, you're processing it as that person. You're like, well, I failed. Right. Mm -hmm. So now you're like, okay, so what did I do wrong? They picked the wrong, they picked the wrong lens or maybe, a, maybe did I get the wrong food for craft services? Like, what the fuck did I do? That there's some element here that I screwed up on. And then you realize you go, actually, it's that that person has no performance chemistry. They don't actually have something. Yeah. And so then examining them, I was like, I need to inject it now. I need to inject mm -hmm. that energy that I can't seem to get out of this person because they're not an actor. They're just a performer and they're, and this dude, I'm not going to get specific, but let's pretend like this dude was very like technical and he was just sort of focused on like playing everything technically. And I couldn't get it through his head. Then it was like, this is cinema. This isn't, you're not actually fucking playing. It's not like I'm plugged in your amp. You don't have to be technical. Mm -hmm. Be over. So what I had to do is I had to pick the camera up, pick the camera up and I started to move it around and shake it around and tried to inject it with all of this energy and inject it with all the, the vibrance that he couldn't project on it mm -hmm. and so as a director i sort of had this moment where i realized it doesn't matter how much prep you do doesn't matter how much you study the language of cinema doesn't matter how much you do any of that stuff your job is just the audience your job is the the, the, the guiding force it's almost like the crossing guard for the emotion that the audience is going to feel when they watch this stuff and you got to use every fucking trick in the book that you have at your disposal to yeah. make sure that that comes across yeah. At the end of the day. And I love what you're saying about in the moment realizing that it wasn't working and having to make a change because yeah. on this last shoot, we were about to go outside. The la the later half of the script was supposed to be shot outside and it never rains in LA. <laughs> and I kid you not, at the moment we were getting ready to go outside, it started to drizzle, <laughs> which forced us into problem solving mode and... I worked with a, an amazing DP. He's, he goes by Cuba, but he was awesome and bringing ideas to the table. And we figured out, okay, let's shoot this this final scene against the house under the awning, mm -hmm. so that the camera will be safe. And it's so funny how, yeah. And Rick said to me, "This is the process of filmmaking. Yes, um, having to make decisions in the moment and." What's so neat about it is that it forces presence and it's very meditative in that way to me. And even as being an actor as well, you have to be incredibly present and in the moment and sort of, yeah, you do all the prep work, like you said, but, but at the moment in which you're shooting, you have to make some game time decisions that are going to affect how this thing turns out. 100%. And these decisions that you make, I can tell you five of them. They end up becoming pillars of mm -hmm. your of your creative life. Yeah. Where, you, where, like, if you can successfully navigate those, like, there are 
a bunch of them where I can stand up and literally be in Ridley Scott's office going, yeah, I can fucking do this because I did that. Because there was that one time during that day when this shit happened and I navigated it. I figured it out and I was there and I was flowing there. And when you're doing it, you feel so good doing it because like you said, you, you sort of like transmit your consciousness out of like that worried sort of functional sort of here's my plan and everything that's supposed to go to my fucking plan and it's all falling apart and then you start to feel shitty about yourself and you start to like have self-doubt and somehow you're able to sort of transmit yourself beyond that and stand above the set and see it from a bird's eye view and sit there and go asshole what if you did this instead and what if this happens here right and then you start to put the pieces together and you're like Oh, and then it gets exciting because it's not what you have been like tooling over for months on the paper, which is boring to you now because you've spent all that time doing it and you're seeing something born in front of you. And if you have the right creatives around you and they go, ooh, and then everybody starts going, and then it gets exciting. And then you're like, fuck. And then that becomes your favorite thing that you've done. It's amazing. And it's also, well, it's very spiritual, Mm -hmm. I think. And as you were speaking, I was thinking about how it goes from being a very intellectual process, mm-hmm. the, the process, and, and maybe, you know, everybody has a different experience, but the process of laying out shots prior to the day feels very intellectual to me. But when you're there on the day, you're relying on your intuition. So it's almost like it goes from being in your head to being in your body, you drop into your body, you drop into your gut and your instinct, and you're relying on these instincts that you have. And really it's all tied to the art form of storytelling and and making and conveying stories to people, which is Mm. one of the most ancient, it's the most ancient art form, I think. I completely agree. I completely agree. I just went to, (laughs) I just went to this concert the other night. I got invited by my buddy to go, and it was Joe Satriani. I don't know if you know who Joe Satriani is. Okay. He is the nerdiest guitar player in existence. Like the guy who has created full albums, which is just him playing guitar, so like solo guitar stuff. No singer, no nothing. And he's technical. Like he trained all these amazing guitarists from like Van Halen to like Def Leppard. All these amazing guys went to Joe Satriani. And when I listened to him as a kid, his shit was so fucking boring. It was so boring, so yeah. technical. And you hear the albums and it's just him. And you're like, okay, buddy. And you, you know he's <laughs> just like showing off and finger picking and doing all this stuff. And my buddies that took me, they were so excited. And, he, and my bud was like, do you want to go? And I was like, I don't know. He goes, I have a free ticket. I go, all right, I'll go. So we go to the show and we're driving there. He's going to hate me for saying that. We're driving there and... They're just playing the songs in the car. We're in an Uber and the poor Uber driver. And they're just, and they're both sitting in there, the whitest guys. And they're just in there going like, this is so sweet and so good. And I'm like, it sounds like someone reciting math problems to me. Yeah. And so we get to the show. (laughs) We get to the show. It was at the Orpheum. And the crowd is full of dudes that are slightly older than me they all look like they're like rental house guys you know what i mean like the guys that you go into the camera rental place and he's out back making sure the lenses are tweaked looks like all camera rental guys and i'm in there and i'm like and every once in a while there's like a young kid there's like a young girl there i'm like her dad made her come like that's the only reason why she's here right yeah and so (laughs) this guy comes out on stage 
Satriani comes out. He's 66 or something. His drummer's 68. So these guys come out, and he looks like Larry David, and he's got, like, these Terminator glasses on, you know, and no hair. That's a great visual. Yeah, no hair. Except on his arms. He's got, like, these these wisps of curly white hair. It looks like teen wolf arms, you know, <laughs> and I'm just like sitting there sort of enjoying the fact that I'm out with my buddies and I'm trying to be cool, but I'm also sort of rolling my eyes going like Joe Satriani. Right. And so he starts playing first couple songs, super nerdy. Like they have visuals on the back screen. That's like, 3d jets flying through things and i'm like <laughs> is this like an old windows 98 screensaver that you guys found and so you're just watching it then over time maybe it's because i had a few drinks but then over time i started to get lost in it and then what i realized was that this guy he figured it out that like halfway through the show it was like the first part of the show. He's like, check out how nerdy I am. Check out all these calculations and look how fast I can make my fingers run. And I'm fucking 68, man. And blah, 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 blah. He's doing all this. Halfway through the show, he started to get lost in it. And he apologized to the audience a few times because he's like, I went off on a tangent there. I'd never play it that way. I'd never do it that way. Wow. And what I realized is that this guy knew how to step on, twist, bend, Every aspect of this wooden thing that's in his hands that screams, like screams notes and sounds, that while he was playing, he just got lost in it. And his rhythm guys just did rhythm. So they, so he could do whatever the fuck he wants over the front of it. And you're just watching this guy who has had years and years of fucking with all the resources, fucking with all the elements of what it is that he's doing, just like as a director years and years of this and then being in the moment and sitting there like throwing in these bits and then just getting lost falling to his knees and struggling strangling this instrument to give this specific note and i went okay there it is that's why we're here that's the fucking show that's what i'm watching yes 100 percent. oh my god that gave me chills cool right yeah that's what being an artist is all about it's transcendent it's like even Elizabeth Gil- Gilbert has talked about this, how ideas don't just come from inside of us. They're coming from outside of us. They're entering our brains, which sort of connects back to what I was saying about living in New York and feeling like maybe some of the ideas I was picking up on were coming from the brains of other people. or mm, Like no, tele- uh, tele- tele- telepathy. There, there it is. I couldn't Very get it Very hard out. word to say. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, picking up on the thoughts of their people to form ideas. And um, it it's interesting when, yeah, if you commit in the middle of an artistic act to letting go, mm-hmm. what can happen? And that's sort of why when I got here, I took off my hat and I said... I need my <laughs> my head not to be covered so all the ideas can come to me because I do believe in spirit and yeah. and spirit guides and and maybe my ancestors feeding things to me and maybe you know the great artists of that <laughs> that have come before us maybe whispering in my ear I think yeah and and what's neat about that is so often artistry can become such an egoic thing. You think, I thought up that idea. That was my idea. Yeah. It wasn't. It's, it's not, not your idea. It's not your idea. It wasn't my idea. It came from out of us and I am a channel. I am a conduit. And for me personally, that 
feels like it's my purpose. I, I wrote that story, The Mother Who Never Did Laundry, but I also have a very distinct memory of drawing as a child. I was alone in my backyard drawing a picture of my sister. And I just had this thought, like, I want to be an artist one day. Mm-hmm. I just want to do that. That feels like it's my life's purpose. So to engage in that act of spirituality where you're sort of giving yourself over and also cre- creating something for the enjoyment of others, that is so fulfilling. And mm-hmm. so I'm grateful to be able to do that in whatever capacity somebody allows me to do it, whether it's via advertising or narrative, or if I get to write and make TV one day, I'm just grateful to to be a part of it and to have the opportunity to meet like-minded people. I mean, my favorite people on earth are, are creative people. And it's true. that's what's great about working in this industry too. You meet so many friends. It's not just, it's not just people that you're uh, working with. It's people that you really share your life with and, and ideas are, um, are highly personal. So you engage in this very personal, vulnerable experience yeah. with people sometimes yeah. through the act of making this stuff. Such a menacing intro. (laughs) It is time for us to do some of our ad reads. It's time for us to talk about some of the sponsors, some of the gear. Lots of exciting stuff happening with sponsors right now. I spent all last week meeting with new people, going to new places, checking out new lenses, trying out beautiful anamorphics, uh, talking with some of the coolest lighting manufacturers out there i'm hoping that a bunch of these folks are going to sign on to be sponsors for the show um i just picked up a bunch of new light gear if you guys are following me on instagram you'll see the stuff that we're fucking with and messing around with um we're about to go into production on a gina manning production right now and it's a bunch of shit i'm doing i have to light these scenes to feel like old renaissance paintings so i've been testing a lot of gear um exciting time it's exciting to be back in production to be behind the camera to be crafting things again um and for those of you who are curious not only am i doing stuff for gina but i'm also planning a little short piece that i'm also going to shoot too so lots of cool stuff and and one of the cool things about los angeles is that i've got access to all this really cool stuff here like we just went to they're not sponsoring the show but we just went to lcw props out here in uh glendale me and rick went and fuck me, such a cool space, giant warehouse full of anything you could ever expect for sets. Walls of like dangerous buttons. You know how you go in a building and it's like, don't hit this button. I think Rick and I just ran down the wall and hit all these buttons, like two five-year-olds. Really cool place. I wish, wish, wish I had access to a spot like that when uh, I was doing 12 cam. They actually had full drill bits made of foam and so many cool resources out here in LA for stuff. And the cool thing is, is a lot of these people that do gear and a lot of our sponsors are out here as well. So let me get into it. Let's talk about our friends over at Jambox. I just hung out with Ofer from Jambox last week or two weeks ago. At this point, when this episode came out, he was in Los Angeles. Uh, took me out to dinner. Nice guy. 
and uh, we went and had some really good Italian and we just sat around and we talked. We talked about food, we talked about life, we talked about how the business is working and how successful Jambox has been right now. If you guys don't know, Jambox is the place to go if you're trying to license music, if you're trying to get music for your, uh, for your podcasts, for your commercials, for your, for your short films. You can go to Jambox and get licensed music that sounds like music that you would be listening to otherwise. This is stuff that you'd want to put on your Spotify playlist. Guaranteed. I've been using Jambox now for over a year since I met them earlier this year, and it has helped me got work. It has solidified fantastic jobs for me. It has made my edits look better and sound better. Music does that. Quality music does that. I've used the music on this podcast. There are so many great options for you as a creator. Head on over to jambox.io right now and just listen to the tracks. Let it inspire you. And then look at their subscription plans. They are super affordable. Different uh, options for you if you're just someone that is creating content for the internet, someone that's creating content for the web. Super low price for that. I'm, we're talking under 20 bucks for that per month. Under 20 bucks. Or you can individually license songs, right? They have pricing for individual songs as well. Or you can do the subscription plan that I have, which is the $19.99 a month. It's the uh, creator plan. It enables me to be able to use any of the songs in commercial work, paid work. It also gives me access to stems, which I fucking love. I love being able to take a track, remix it, make it the way I need it to be for the edit. Um, so you can find all this stuff on Jambox. And if you're a student, I think it's like six bucks a month. As long as you're using this stuff for your student films, your student projects, six bucks a month. That's nothing, dude. Nothing. Everybody's talking about what lenses and what gear and whether or not I should buy the new area. Alexa, dude, get yourself Jambox, especially if you edit. It will elevate all of your stuff. It doesn't matter what you're shooting it on. If you've got great sounds, great score, stuff that sounds big, stuff that sounds like it comes out of a trailer, and you put that in your stuff, it's going to be great. I mean, look at this. Look at this, this. The footage that we shot with Robert Pattinson. We shot that on a dad cam, like a mini DV cam. And it sounds awesome because of the stuff I downloaded from Jambox. Jambox.io. Check them out right now. And all of our listeners from September 15th through October 15th, they can get 20% off all of the subscription plans if they use the promo code ILWP20. That's ILWP20. Gets you 20% off at jambox.io. Check it out. Big part of what we do is pitching. If you guys listened to our last episode on pitching with Steve, a uh, big process with anything that we do, whether we're out there trying to get money or convince an actor to be in our, our projects, or even go into a, a location and try to convince them to let us use it for the day. The way you look, the way you dress means a lot. You should have an appearance that makes you look professional, that makes you feel distinguished. And I don't mean wear a suit and a tie. Whatever your description of professional is, whatever your personal appearance, whatever you've decided over the years that you've been on this planet is the best representation of you and how it is that you do things, that's important. Very important. And one of the things that I'm excited about is that I have a sponsorship with Patina Footwear and Portland Leather Goods because I love boots. 
I'm a big fan of boots. I like brown boots. Maybe it's because I grew up, you know, loving Indiana Jones. That's a big part of it. Um, and uh, they sent me two pairs of boots. I love them. I have these brown ones. I have these black ones that have sort of brown uh, details on them. Really great stuff. Head on over to at Patina Footwear or patina.com and check out the boots that I have. Uh, quick read from them. Our boots are hand-built from the best materials and the best prices anywhere. Easiest buying decision you'll make all year. Our leather is made from the highest quality full-grain leather, tanned to perfection, handcrafted into boots you can wear with honest confidence. Head on over to at Patina on Instagram. And I think that's still existing. It might not exist by the time the show comes out, but fuck it, I'll say it anyways. 25% off for the summer with our code SUMMER25. And if that's expired, there's probably something new up there. So head on over to Patina. Uh, I love my boots. You guys are the best for sending me those. Sponsoring the show are good friends over at Puget Systems. You guys know how much I love Puget. They're in the process right now of building me a brand new super secret uh, editing PC with all sorts of new hardware that doesn't exist on the marketplace yet. I'm excited. They're building me a new rig. I can't wait to edit all this stuff that we're going to be shooting over the next month. And I want a super smooth, high-end, as, as Rick Dodge would say, super creamy edit system. I'm excited about it. Um, and you should build yours, man. We're beyond the point of having to go to Apple, to Mac, and spend thousands and thousands of dollars on restrictive hardware, right? The reason why their machines stay working for so long is that they restrict the type of hardware that you can put in it. They keep it simple. You're not allowed to open up the box and exchange stuff. I love with the new PCs. I love the fact that I have the options are limitless for me. You would be surprised. Oftentimes getting the brand new graphics card doesn't mean it's going to run After Effects any better. Save some money on that graphics card, put it towards another card, put it towards a capture card, right? Maybe some of you were doing dad cam stuff. It seems like everybody jumped on the bandwagon to do that after Gina and I did it for a while. Do you guys notice? But maybe you're doing dad cam shit. You got to go back in time and grab one of those old capture cards. Maybe you got to grab an old Firewire capture card. Try cramming that into one of the new Mac boxes. See if that works for you. <laughs> I like to have my tools do what I ask, I ask them to do. I don't want my tools to tell me what to do. That's why I work on PC, and that's why I work with Puget Systems. They have customer support that's real customer support. Uh, they're a family-owned company, and these guys don't manufacture hardware, so they're not going to fucking try to offload a warehouse full of shit on you. You know what I mean? These guys benchmark test everything out there. They know what works with the latest update, the latest software update. They know the whole deal. Head on over to PugetSystems.com. Even if you're building your own PC, they put all of their stuff up there. It is a great resource. Check them out. Or you can head over to Instagram at Puget Systems. Um, I love those guys. They've been with the show since the beginning. The show would be nothing without them. So thank you, Puget Systems, for supporting us. All right, and also supporting the show are our friends over at Fujifilm. I currently, while we're talking here right now, you can hear me fucking with it. I am holding my H2S. I love this camera, man. My little Fuji X-H2S. Um, this is such a great video camera, and I've been using it for this. It's such a great second shooter. 
and I'm just sort of scrolling through my menus as we talk. One of the things I love about it is that you could add film simulations to it and you can add grain effects to it. So right now I'm going through, uh, they have so many great options for you. Let's say you wanted to add some grain because with a lot of these new digital cameras, they're too crisp, they're too clean, right? Do you guys feel this way? I say this all the time whenever I'm out there looking for the right lens. I drive a car with a filthy windshield. I don't see the world perfect the way that some of these cameras do. So oftentimes if it's too clean and too crisp, I just don't believe it. Suspension of disbelief is out the window. So I like to add some grit. I like to, I like to add some grain to my images. That's why I like to use LUTs when I'm shooting. Um, but for the grain effects, they have three different options. Wow, strong and weak. You can have large or small grains. All these things are added even to the raw files as you're shooting, which I love. Um, and then, like I said, uh, the film simulator is amazing. One of their cool settings that I use all the time is their Externa Cinema setting, which is soft color and rich shadow tones suitable for film, for like a film look, which I love. And I think that is the closest thing to one of their Fuji film stocks. They also have a great bleach bypass look. When is that coming back? That was such a big 2000s thing, right? Underworld and all those movies. Um, they have a nostalgic negative, amber tinted highlights in rich shadow tone for printed photo look. I love that. And I know a lot of you are asking like, Mike, why don't you just shoot a raw and try to replicate all these in post? Yeah, sometimes. But most of the time when I'm shooting things, the turnaround's super fucking quick. And there's something nice about shooting with the lighting that you're seeing. It's like using a lot adjusting the lighting to adjust the look, right? So I'm not adjusting the look to work for the flat lighting that I did. I like to work the other way. I like to see how a lens and light responds to a look. I really do. Let's see what else they have in here. Uh, pro negative high, classic chrome, um, Ostia soft, softer color and contrast for, an, for a more subdued look. The Velvia Vivid Vibrant Repro Reproduction, ideal for landscapes and nature. And the stuff that I use on here more than anything are the uh, across black and white settings. Produces uh, pleasing skin tones and portraits. Dude, I'm telling you, this is what I love about this camera. It makes it fun to pick it up and shoot. It makes it fun to be on set with. And it's a beast when it comes to video. There's a bunch of really great options. Let me take a look in here while we're talking. Right now I'm in movie mode, 4K, um, but I could change that from 23 all the way up to 60p. Um, there's also 6K, uh, which is really great in here. And I think that is, will be cropping, cannot use slower than the frame rate. Yeah, I get it. Uh, but I'm always shooting 4K, man. I love it. It's really cool. I just shot a food piece that is sitting in my editor right now, and I just haven't had time to cut it, Fuji, but I do have a cool piece. So head on over to Fujifilm. Check them out. Uh, look at all their new cameras on the market. Check them out. Like, dude, I'm telling you right now, because Gene and I had to make an upgrade. For years, we were shooting with another camera company. Mine began with an N, and we were doing so much stuff, and it just sort of hit a point where we needed cameras that were better for low light settings. We needed cameras with more options. Uh, we needed cameras that had better video. We needed cameras that shot fluid 4K and that would shoot for long periods of time. Um, and uh, that's why we went to Fuji. And uh, at some point I'll have Gina on because she's shooting with her medium format camera, which is awesome. And we just did tests with it last week. 
And so I ran some tests and I was shooting at 800 at, uh, I think it was like 250 shutter speed. And I was still using uh, all of my super nice um, LED tubes. And so I was able to get colors that looked really vibrant with it just using LEDs, which is awesome for a medium format. Most of the time with that stuff, I'd have to be still shooting strobes. So anyway, long conversation about Fujifilm. I can't say enough about these guys. I love the fact that they're our big sponsor on the show this year, and you guys should go check them out. So links for all of our sponsors are in the description of this episode. While you listen to the show, just click through, check it out, man. What are you doing? You're just sitting there anyways, right? And for those of you who are new to the show, remember, head on over to inlovewiththeprocess.com. There you can find more info on all of our sponsors. But more importantly, we've curated the shows based upon subject material. So if you just want to listen to all my chef's episodes, they're there. If you want to listen to all the actress episodes, they're up there. Super easy to choose. And I know that there's a lot of people that are coming specific for content. I have a lot of directors showing up going, I want to hear all the writing episodes. Well, don't worry. We put them together for you. Inlovewiththeprocess.com is the place to go. All right, that's it. Let's get back into it with Hillary. I find too that like uh, I sort of I get high on creating environments where we all can enjoy those things, whether it's a barbecue or whether it's a, a, a movie shoot, mm-hmm. you know, and and those moments that mean so much to me are those moments where everybody is coming at it from all different places, all different walks of life. It doesn't matter what your gender, who gives a fuck? It's, it's everybody's there specifically for this thing that you're making or this thing that you're doing. And it's beautiful. And when you, when you see it work, when you see the sense of excitement that all these folks are having, and eh, there's a bit of ego there, I'm sure, but you're also like, I was able to bring this together not just selfishly for myself, but also for all these other folks and what they're enjoying from it and what they're taking away from it. And um, I miss that. And I think yeah. that uh, for me, that was more of an East Coast thing than it is a West Coast thing. And I'm, I'm trying this year, I'm working hard to try to make it a West Coast thing for me. Yeah. It's like that building and that sharing because out here everybody's so fucking focused on like themselves, themselves, oh my and then God, like yeah. the envy, the yeah. envy game that happens with folks where it's like, how come this person did that? And it's like, because you're not fucking right for it. Like, yeah, get over it. Like it's you're not in the right place at the right time to do that fucking gig, and you're not going to get it, right? Yeah. Well, I think that's an interesting point you bring up um, because I do feel that. LA is a very narcissistic city. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we're all guilty of it to a certain degree. I th- we are also living in a time that has trained us to be very narcissistic. And I don't want to throw around the word narcissism. I know it's become <laughs> popular to do so. No, that is a true condition the with a real uh, diagnosis. But there is a very navel-gazing quality to the 
to the city out here and the work that we do. And I'm even guilty of sometimes forgetting what the purpose is. And that purpose is, like you said, bringing joy to others. And I actually started riding, riding horses last year. Oh, cool. And I have an incredible instructor. Her name is Belinda, but we were talking about meaning and purpose and, um, because really at the end of the day, none of what we're doing here matters. <laughs> yeah. No. So if you know that it doesn't matter and that we were talking about how everybody's born worthy with inherent worth and nothing <laughs> that you do will make you more worthy or a better person. And I said to her, well then what motivates us to do anything? And I've had that thought listening even to like Eckhart Tolle, his book, um, the power of now, if we're supposed to have detachment to all these things, these things that we're doing on the physical plane, what motivates us to do anything? And um, what she said was what my purpose, I have a very strong sense of purpose. I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this, but I just think it's beautiful. She said, I have a strong sense of purpose and at the center of what I do is other people and, and my horses. And so I'm trying to reframe storytelling and like you said, it's all about the audience. It's like, mm-hmm. what will bring joy to somebody? What will make them smile? And oftentimes it's taking from your own life and, and creating something that other people can relate to. So you you are a part of it inherently. You're mm-hmm. woven into the fabric of whatever it is that you're doing. But it's important to remember that it's for other people. and. Yeah. Even as a performer, I, th- I think it's extra hard as an actor because it's all about your image and what your face looks like and your headshot and all of these things and your performance. But really, at the end of the day, the reason why you're doing the performance is to make somebody else feel something. So, which also ties back to what I was saying about how the government should pay us for contributing to <laughs> culture. Because because comedy, and, and even if it's not comedy, because I do things that aren't just strictly comedy... Um, art is therapeutic Mm -hmm. and it connects us and it helps us feel okay. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we live in such a capitalist society that they they don't give a shit. It's all about buying things, but I, I, yeah, it is, it is buying things and all that. I love things, but Mm. I'm actually a Capricorn. We're known for (laughs) our sense of, uh, we we have um, a love for fine things. Are you eye rolling? No, it's such an LA thing for me to say. <laughs> no, it's funny because I uh, I came I became interested in astrology probably through my friend Katya, who's been in it for a very long time, long before it was trendy to talk about what your what your sun sign, moon sign, and rising sign are. <laughs> Um, uh-huh. but I've been into it through her for quite a while. And I've long said this thing for anybody who decries astrology or, or thinks it's bullshit. I, I say, looking, looking I'm, looking, I'm looking directly in your eyes. <laughs> um, I've always said this thing. Well, I mean, we're on a rock that's floating through space. Doesn't it make sense that the planets would affect us, our personality, who we are? And I was watching Husbands and Wives, which is another Woody Allen film. And there's this, I think it was made in the 80s. There's this bimbo character in the film. 
And she says almost verbatim that thing at a party. And it's really funny because Nora Ephron makes a cameo in this scene. And she's like, are you kidding? Yeah, she doesn't say, are you kidding me? But she's one of the people that this bimbo character is talking to. <laughs> and everyone's like, this girl's crazy. That's that's the vibe of the scene. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm that bimbo at the party. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Thanks. I don't think. You Look, it's taken me a lot of work. <laughs> to be open, to not be a closed off, crusty fucking East Coaster. So, listen, if I roll my eyes, sometimes it's just, it's the leftovers. I'm still trying to open my, you know, my, <laughs> my perspective on certain things. Well, I mean, we're here, aren't we? Yes. How are we here? You know, how are we here? The Big Bang, but like... It, oh, you mean like the big thing? I was like, I came out of my mom at one point. No, I know, but it's just like... I think humans are very cocky sometimes. Yes, we are. We think that the world revolves around us. And no, there is so much else out there, so much we don't know, so much we don't know even about the planet that we live on. Mm -hmm. So, um, but it's uncomfortable to live in the unknown. And so that's why it, we like to compartmentalize. We like to, we like facts. Mm -hmm. We like knowing. Mm -hmm. We like knowing things because it makes us feel secure. That's why I think people even, uh, that's what attracts people to religion. Um, yeah, for sure. For it, sure. That's what attracts people also to getting readings from intuitives and psychics. We want to know what's going to happen. We want to know, we want to know things. It's a security blanket, but really there's so much we will never know. Mm hmm and it's scary, but I also find it really fascinating and I also find it really cool. And that's what allows me to be open to the idea that astrology um, can be truthful. I'm also interested in this thing called human design. Have I talked to you about it? No, what's this? It's fascinating. Um, it's another system by which to understand people, but it came to this guy as a download in the 80s. Literally as a download, he downloaded this system and you, it's based on the idea that there are five energy types. Whoa, whoa. So he downloaded it. So he thought of this is what you're saying when he did, when he downloaded it. Essentially, I think that he had some sort of spiritual transcendent experience. I don't know all okay. the details of it, Okay. but, um, it came from out of him, I guess in the way that ideas do, like we mm -hmm. were talking about earlier, mm -hmm. but it's a very complex, intricate system. And it's based on the idea that there are five energy types and knowing your energy type and your design helps you understand how to navigate through the world, how to interact with other people, how to design your life according to you. Interesting. And one of the main uh, teachers in human design today, her name is Jenna Zoe. Look her up. She's great. She has a great podcast as well, My Human Design. And uh, My Human Design is her business name. But... She, um, in her podcast talks about, we, we, everyone is different, but we, we pretend like there's only one way to live life. Mm -hmm. Let's start talking about this. Mm -hmm. Everyone should be able to design their life according to what is best for them. And you can find your design in your chart. So you plug in the same to find your chart. You can search like my human design chart calculator, something like that. And you use the same information that you use to get your astrology chart. So it's your day of birth, time and place. Mm -hmm. And it spits out this chart and 
You, you are one of five energy types, but there are all these other parts of the chart that help you understand your specific design. So, hmm. you know, I'm a projector, but other projectors, there are things that, you know, are, are common. They're common denominators amongst all projectors, but they're, but we're all different because all of our charts have different um, number profiles and we we have different gifts and so it's it's really neat but um so wait so this is based on initially it's based on like obviously date of birth and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff so like what you yeah. what month and all that yeah fascinating okay yeah. but so there are five energy types do you want me to give you an overview of sure them? why not we're in this let's okay, do it cool. let's do it so there are manifestors manifesting generators generators projectors and reflectors and so I know a little bit about each of the different types, but I know the most about projectors because that's what I am. So we are likened to being, we are like the birds in the trees. So we, we can sit in a tree, look down and see, okay, you go that way, you, you do this. We're really good at giving people ideas, kind of seeing the larger picture mm-hmm. and understanding how things work and fit together. So our value isn't in necessarily doing, like generators are really good at doing, 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 whereas projectors, we are valued for what we see and the advice that we can give and the direction we can give, which is sort of where directing comes in. Mm-hmm. Um, although there's quite a bit of doing involved in directing, but- Yeah, it's like this um, weird mix of those two, I would yeah, think. Yeah, yeah, and, and of course you can do and make as a projector as well. But a lot of what I've learned through my design, it's given me permission to be this way that I've always wanted to be and have always felt that I am. That's great. But society doesn't always, yeah, society kind of designs this one way of doing and living and and human design sort of takes that and blows the lid off of that and and gives you permission to um, design your life in a way that fits best with you and your body and the way that you are. And and projectors are non-energy beings, which means that once our energy is depleted, we need to really rest and restore. And everyone needs to rest. But other some of the other types are a bit different. Generators are energy beings. And when they're doing something that they love, they get lit up by it. So they can go, 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 go. And I see that with people like... A lot of people in the film industry are, are generators. I have, a, I have a lot of that. Yeah. Yeah. That, I mean, you might be one. 70% of the population, I believe, um, are generators. And generators make the world go round. So we need them. But as a, a projector, I really do feel that I need to rest and, um, and sleep more than maybe some people do, which isn't, which we're told is not how to get is not the way to get things done. Yeah, but it's uh, sleep is so fucking important. It really is, yeah. So important. Um, well, let me say this. I've always said this, and I say this honestly. Mm. Whatever it is that you find that makes you happy, whatever it is that you find that makes you happy, that, that gives you a sense of purpose, that gives you a respite from the anxiety of fucking life that most people can't find, power to it man like yeah. it, it, like there are i will roll my eyes at the the institutionalized bullshit that yeah. that is sold to us consistently it's at the end of the day it doesn't matter what it is you believe in as long as it's not being destructive to fucking others as long as it's not being manipulated to, yeah. to for for uh, destructive gains like what we were talking about at the beginning of the fucking show so is like 
whatever it takes. I've always been a philosopher. I've always, this has always been my philosophy. Like whatever it takes for you to be cool, man. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. And I like to hear about it. I think a lot of the stuff that you're talking about resonates with me. I believe in so a lot glad. of that stuff. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. I just start rolling my eyes when there are charts and there are things and someone's selling you things. And then when we start getting into that game and then you start to feel the, the capitalism coming into it yeah. and you're just like oh, don't make this capital just make this an idea that's really cool why do you have to profit okay i'm I not saying it. that this person is profiting on all that but it just generally it you know next thing you know us on the back of a chinese food menu somewhere and then they're selling you cookies that are coming out well hopefully like, not <laughs> i mean one cool thing about jenna is she doesn't take sponsorships okay so even yeah. on her podcast you won't hear ads or anything like that oh we do sponsors all the time on this show i mean i work in advertising so you know who am i to talk but um <laughs> this is how i this is how i keep it i mean and that's the thing like we're we're forced into it's funny because yeah like we were talking about earlier we're forced into this corner of having to make money and so um, yeah, yeah, it's a game of lesser evils. Like, but yes, exactly. I've been talking about this for the past year. I make more now on sponsorships on the show than I do going to direct mm-hmm. for commercials. Yeah, and and I will talk to clients and uh, be like, "Hey, I'd love to direct a spot for you," and they'll go, "Sure, here's some money." And then I'll go, wait a minute, what if you sponsor the show? And they go, here's three times that money. And I go, well, then fuck it, I'll just do the podcast. I don't want to. Well, that's the thing. A lot of advertisers are realizing that you can reach way more ears and eyeballs through influencer sponsorships than you can through ads, which I think is partially why the ad industry is floundering a bit right now and having an identity crisis. and, And a lot of the big institutions are... Yeah, trying to figure out how do we stay afloat and um, how do you survive with it? Yeah, I, the last thing I directed was a few months ago for a company that makes and uh, <laughs> fucking blew my mind. They paid the influencers that were in it three times the amount, four times the amount that I had for the production budget. Yeah, it's wild. And then I just was talking to the guy who does the influencer stuff, and I go, "How do I become an influencer?" Yeah, exactly. How do you? What the fuck, man? Like they just made my year and a half salary just being here and just being here. Exactly. For fucking what? You know. Yeah, it's a wild time. When you talk about it's sort of cool in the way that there's a level of autonomy that you are able to access by being your own entity. Yes. And um. And being a quote unquote influencer. Yes. That's funny to me. But yeah, I mean, it, we're sort of all at the behest of technology too, though. I mean, sure. Yeah. I influencers mean, are born out of social media, essentially. And, cell phones. And, yeah. Yeah. And cell phones. And so it will be really interesting to see how that all changes. But sometimes it's difficult for me to get into that mindset because I'm a. I'm an old school person at heart. I mean, I we were born in a time in which I remember, so my dad as a sales guy has always sold tech parts, the parts that go on our phones and computers. And mm. I remember hearing as a kid when I was like eight years old, yeah, one day there are going to be phones that you can see people on. And that just blew my mind. <laughs> like, I couldn't imagine a day in which you could see someone on your phone, like a video, wait, what? And... um. So, but 
I I love um, I love the idea that in the eighties you would make plans with someone, mm-hmm. and then you would just agree to be at a, a place at a certain time, <laughs> and you would show up there. And if you didn't, then you stood your friend up. There wasn't any last minute changes. Changes. It was there was a purity and just a simplicity and like I I think part of. I, I mean, I love technology for this right now, being able to connect us and, and share this message with people, but I'm very careful with it because I find that technology disconnects me from my humanity and all the spiritual things that we were talking about. It's, yeah. it's hard to fear, feel connected to our spiritual selves when we're carrying around these devices um, that are robotic. Yeah, they're also clotting our brains with uh, dopamine, they're clotting our brains with addictive substances. And yeah. it's, I, 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 I feel, I, I firmly believe that 15 years, 20 years from now, people are going to look back on our generation and go, those idiots. Same way that they, we look back on folks that smoke cigarettes every fucking day and smoked right. around their kids. Right. They're just going to be like, they wonder why they have cancer of the fucking hand and cancer of their thighs because it's in their pockets. And all they did, they were just addicted to this bullshit. Yeah. And self-glorification that didn't mean anything. It didn't go anywhere. Right. Well, let me take this opportunity to remind everyone to put your phone on airplane mode at night. Yeah. Because anytime that your phone's not on airplane mode, it's reaching for that Wi-Fi signal. And most phones have five, a lot of phones have 5G on them now. Yep. So put that shit on airplane mode, especially if you're carrying it on your body. You're, you know, that's exposing your body to Yeah, the Wi-Fi signals. Yeah, and yeah. The signals. And also what's helpful is turning off your Wi-Fi at night. My move that I've been doing is that I plug my phone in on the desk and then I go to bed. Smart. Yeah, I just, I need to. And then, you know, being old now, when I wake up three times to piss at night, it's like this Mm -hmm. game of like keeping my, because I wear wear those little blinders at night to darken out the room. So like I half have them over my eyes and wander down to the bathroom. (laughs) And then I try not to think about anything. And it it tries to come in. Mm -hmm. Like I do that walk and it's like, hey, what about that thing you're supposed to do tomorrow? I'm like, shh, shh, shh. Because then you'll pick up the phone. Then you'll come in and go, hey, did you ever get that email? And what yeah. happened with that? And then you pick that fucking oh phone God. up and it's three hours later and it's... It's so hard. And then as soon as you're looking at the phone, that's blue light exposure and it tricks your body into thinking that it's, it's like, yeah, the middle of the day. Yeah. And that messes with your circadian rhythm and keeping our circadian rhythms in check are really is really important for keeping our bodies healthy, fighting off illness, you know, disease, things like that. So... um I try to be attuned, and that's why I am thankful for living in a place like California because sun is so important to our health. And yeah. there are certain times of day where it's best to get sunlight, where you're in the morning, actually, right after dawn and right before sunset, there are equal amounts of UVV, UVA and UVB rays. Mm-hmm. Don't quote me on this. Heard it on a podcast. <laughs> okay, second hand. But from the people that I respect who I've listened to. Yeah. Uh, you're getting equal amounts of these rays. And um, I think it's both like the red and blue spectrums of light. Okay. And 
those are the best times to be outside and hmm. um, take off your glasses, take take your contacts out because even my contacts have UV, UV protection. Yeah, yeah. But you want to be able to get to look at things and get that sunlight in through your eyes. Don't stare at, don't stare at the sun. There is an ancient practice of sun gazing, but you have to be very careful about how you do yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it is right after dawn and right before sunset, but. But make sure you're studying with someone who knows what they're doing if you're going to try that practice. But, um, hmm. but yeah, uh, sunlight's so important. It's harder to get that sometimes on the East Coast. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I do miss. <clears throat> um, I, uh, it's not popular opinion, but I do miss like the snow. I, st- I still miss the all seasons. That stuff. Yeah. I mean, autumn is my favorite time of year. Autumn's amazing. We kind of have like a weird autumn after. Christmas here. It's weird. It felt like the fall after December here mm. for a period, at least oh, where yeah. we are. Okay. You know, because the fucking avocado tree sheds its leaves and then it becomes like, oh. it feels very folly. Interesting. But it's not like, you know, not like the vibrance of the yeah, East Coast. No, uh, it's, yeah. it's fake fall. It's fake fall. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah we, and you, you just can't find, I think that out in places like, like Arrowhead, I think they have. I think the leaves might change out there. I'm not sure, but hmm. Big Bear, I'd imagine. But yeah, um, Big Bear is fun. But still, I don't think the the trees are anywhere near as gorgeous as they are on the East Coast and the Northeast. No, and I also I think the thing I miss the most is when you did get that snow. What I love about snow is that snow is like one of the few temporary natural disasters. Mm-hmm. So like it it just shows up and it quiets everything. Yeah. And what I used to love was uh, after you'd have like, you know, a foot dumped on you or half a foot dumped on you and you would go out at night and shovel, everything was dampened. Yeah. And so it was like this sort of dampened sort of existence and it just brought the volume down and everything. That's what I felt in New York. It was the only time that the city ever really shut off because it's the city that never sleeps. But when it's truly snowing, everything gets quiet. So nice. It's really gorgeous. It's it's. um, It's so nice. Yeah, it's it's like no other. Very romantic. Very magical. And it's nice to sort of like show up to it and then leave it. (laughs) Yes. Because then when you're like two days in, then the the snow turns to brown slush. Exactly. And then it turns to ice. Exactly. And then it becomes a nightmare. But when it does it and you're able to be a part of it, it's just so magical. Very romanticized at this point. Yeah. Because we don't really have that here. I think when the winds start kicking in, when we start to get like the Santa Ana winds and stuff, that's pretty mm. magical here. And when we do get uh, thunderstorms, when we finally get those. Oh, yeah. Those are pretty fucking magical, pretty epic. There's a different version of magic that exists out here. I mean, the light yeah, is 100%. unlike anything. I mean, I don't know if you feel this way, but I feel like whenever I go back east, the light is so yellow. And back here, there's a purity and a crispness to the quality of the morning light. Weird. So you think it's more yellow on the East Coast? Yeah, than it's I think it's, it's like there's a bluer tone to it out here, like a brightness. Weird. A crispness. I don't know. That's how I feel. Um, Weird. I, I, I sent pictures to a friend of mine who lives in New York, and she's like, oh, my God, the light there is just incredible. Yeah, because being a cinematographer for years, on the east coast we used to get hired 
to try to replicate the, the California yeah, sunlight. that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, and you would spend hours and hours, and it kind of looked like it. You're putting the units up, yeah. and you're doing this, and then you just show up here, and then I go out and shoot in like a few hours, and it just does it. Yeah, it's amazing. It's got to be the fucking smog. and the- Probably. Well, I think that what they say is that beautiful sunsets are attributed to pollution (laughs) so you're looking at this gorgeous sunset in LA like oh my god and then you remember oh right because we have pollution I don't know if that's the only reason though but if I mean and also if you go to places like Joshua Tree there is an eeriness where you feel Rick and I stayed in this one Airbnb years ago that Mm -hmm. was next to these very large rocks and we were stargazing one night and both at the same time looked at one another and ran inside. We got spooked. We felt this energy. It felt like an alien was about to walk out from behind <laughs> one of the rocks. It was insane. But I really like that. It's you yeah, you don't get the Joshua tree feeling anywhere on no. the East Coast either. No. No, you don't no. Not like that. No. I mean you get some there are weird places. You can but get like weird New Englandy woods, like deep dark woods in the October, oh, yeah. and like that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm obsessed with Maine. Maine mm-hmm. is one of my favorite places on earth. I grew up going there as a kid a lot. Mm-hmm. And my favorite parts of Maine are not like York, where it's very touristy. No, take me to the craggy, <laughs> rocky, stormy, yeah, angry. Parts yeah. and when I say angry, it's almost like the ocean is a vicious beast. It's up vicious there. and it's so expressive and it's crashing against the rocks. And um, Pemaquid Point is one of those places. Mm-hmm. Now I'm advertising it. Everyone's gonna go there. <laughs> um, but it's just incredible. There's nothing like it, and I would love to live there one day. But it gets really cold in the winter. Yeah. It's it's one of those places where it kind of turns on for summer. There's a summer season, and then a and lot then of places close for winter. They had a lot of they. I don't know if they still do, but they had a lot of drug traffic stuff up there too for really? quite some time. Believe it or not, like Maine oh. is like a big place for drug trafficking. I had no idea. Which is pretty intense. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, the the ocean spot that I love, I think more than there, is actually here on the Pacific Coast Highway. And oh. as you start going north, the fucking ocean is so massive. And it just the idea that that just is huge mass that's just slamming up against the coast. I don't know if I've talked about it on the show before, but years ago, Gina and I were in San Francisco, and I love Route One, mm-hmm. and I've done music videos in Route One. I've driven that coast multiple times, and I said to Gina, "I'm like, let's just drive down the coast. We'll get maybe to Santa Cruz, and then we'll go back." So we drove down, and it's beautiful. There's like. Uh, this beach that I love, like right out of you get out of San Francisco, you go through the tunnel and then you start to eject from the tunnel and you're on the Pacific coast. Mm-hmm. And there's this beach like right at the top. It's called like whale tail or white whale cove. Cool. And as you pull over, you look down and it's a fucking cliff, like, like fucking huge cliff. I can't, I can't imagine what the measurements are, but massive cliff, but they have a staircase that, takes you a while to get down and you get down to this like little beach and the waves are massive like the waves are like eight feet 12 feet smash smash and gene and i went on this trip and we really weren't paying attention to the weather 
And we were coming back and it got real foggy. The fog is super cool up there too, the way oh, the yeah. fog rolls in. And uh, we're driving back up the coast and we're hearing that there's a hurricane off. Oh no. The coast. I'm like, whoa. And the, and I we're looking out. The waves are massive. They're smashing into the coastline. And you know, I always laugh when you drive by the, the uh, tsunami signs, which is like... <laughs> This little fucking the silhouette of a human being running from their life, and there's like this huge <laughs> tidal wave that's going, and so we're like, whoa! And I'm excited because I love. I grew up on the beach, you know, so I love the wave and the surf, and I'm like, this is really cool. And as we're coming back, we go back up to San Francisco. We go through the tunnel, and then as you come out of the back end, right as you come out of the back end of that tunnel, there's this little beach community, and we were hungry. And it's like, well, San Francisco's like right there. Let's go in. So we pulled in. Now it's starting to rain. Now it's dark. And you got the fucking clouds coming in, right? So we pull into like this little beach community. And as we pull all the way down to the end, it's dark and, you know, it's raining. And so our headlights are just illuminating stuff. And we're seeing surf, like just crashing, right? And it's like, oh, cool. This must be on the beach. This must be a parking lot that's on the beach pull in, take a left, and there's this old school restaurant bar that feels like it's straight out of a John Carpenter movie. Cool. And this is my this is my life. So I'm like, yes. So we pull in and we park and the surface and it's it hits so hard that you feel it. It's like little mini earthquakes. Yeah. Boom, boom. And so we're looking and I have to park the car three or four lengths from the edge because the surf is coming over on the cars. And I'm like, wow, we must be like beach level. So we get down there and we're dodging the waves. The waves are coming and then we're looking and we go look down and we're a good 30 feet up. Oh my God. And the waves are just smashing into this. And so we go into this restaurant and it felt like an old uh, Carpenter meets Spielberg kind of vibe and you go in and this restaurant has been open since, I don't know, early 1900s or whatever it is. It's like this dance floor that's closed and this is a bar that you're sitting around and every time the wave hits, all the glasses that are hanging over the bar are all rattled. And this place is rattling and we order like steaks. That's a movie. And it was so cool. So fucking cool. That's amazing. So romantic. So fucking, it's like the fog, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that coast. The ocean is magical. It's so cool. I learned to have such a respect for it. As a kid, I took surfing lessons. And I remember a couple of times I just got like demolished. And I remember <laughs> thinking at age 13, I was like, wow, nature is just so incredible. Yeah. And... Yeah, it will have its way with you. Yeah. You are just a little ant. You mean nothing to it. Yeah, no, it's incredible. That's why those big wave surfers always fascinate me. Um, they're so brave. But yeah, I mean, Big Sur, have you done Big Sur? Yes, love That's Big incredible. Sur. That's incredible. The the fog you were mentioning, one time we were driving around, we were driving along the highway and the there was this blanket of clouds and it felt like we were driving through the air. It felt like we were flying, but we were driving. It was yeah. so neat. Yeah, we stayed, without going too deep, we stayed in it recently, uh, this hotel that's right on the cliff that is up near, oh, fuck, Monterey. So it's oh, up wait, the, Pink. Yeah, Pink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you stay there? No, but I was looking at that place one time. And then, so um, cool. 
Gene and I were talking about it. So cool. Yeah, it looks really cool. And you go there and you just see the fog come in. And it's like just this cotton candy that just sort yeah. of yeah. finds its way up the mountains through the little cracks and crevices. It's fucking rad. It's amazing. I still prefer Maine Northeast Ocean. There's something different about it. Very different. Very different. Maybe it's because I just spent a lot of time. Because, you know, we were on the Cape all the time. and we're, Right. We were in the... So there's something new and novel about just this side. It's like to me, this is like this is like John Carpenter meets the Goonies. Like all that stuff is like on that coast. Yeah, it's got like this dreariness, but it's not freezing, right? So it's you're still kind of out there, which is like a light raincoat on, and right, you know. Okay. Maybe maybe you're gonna like you like the Pacific over the Atlantic. No, I love the Atlantic. I'm just saying that I think that this coast is just a lot more more epic. Cinematic. Cinematic, there's the word. (laughs) Yeah, whatever. (laughs) I can can see that. I can can see that. Uh, But I mean, California's fun. I I just hung out with Rick. Did he tell you what we did last week? You went to... The props place. Did he tell you about the props place? yeah, he was telling me about that. Every prop under the sun. It's nuts. You should have seen him. He was like a kid in a candy store. Yeah, that sounds fun. There was a whole wall of like those emergency buttons that you're not allowed to push in buildings. And he's just like. Oh, that sounds like him. Yeah. Yeah. His specialty is uh, pushing buttons. Yeah. I used to have to, because there was a guy taking us on a tour and I would just be like, Rick. And he would just like come out of the room with like a gun. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> men and their toys I'm like we gotta keep going so california's fun like it's got a it's got a lot of this stuff that it, that's really cool and if you're in i'm feeling this right now is sort of this creative energy and i'm trying to surround myself with folks that are being creative but also putting myself out there into like weird places like that where it's just like yeah i think we forget how weird the world is sometimes yeah i don't know maybe i'm speaking for myself here i it's so cool to see how many different groups out there exist. And uh, I've been thinking about, yeah, signing up for something wacky and just putting myself out there and just having a different experience. I'm, I definitely am craving community because, well, I used to work at an ad agency and then the pandemic happened and we all went remote and now I'm freelance. And um, you work from the house most of the time now? Oh, yeah. So. You know, unless unless I'm making a plan to see a friend or or go to some sort of group activity, I'm only with myself, Rick, and Maya, Maya our dog, <laughs> who thinks that she's a human. Um, so the combo of Rick yeah. and the dog must... Uh... <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, it definitely keeps life interesting, but... Um, <laughs> But you know, I, I I miss I miss that that weirdness that human interaction. Going to work, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah, because I mean, the neat thing about working in a creative industry is you're you're shooting the shit with people, and yeah, it's it yeah you you can work all week and not feel like you you have to go to a party because you you've had so much fun working with your coworkers or just talking, you know, at the. We didn't actually have a water cooler, but you know, it's so, yeah. so yeah, I mean, there, there are so many cool things out there to do and experience. And that's also why I love travel and I want to prioritize travel more. And I'm actually going to Vermont in a couple of weeks, which isn't, you know, I, I'm from the Northeast. So, um, I went to Greece earlier this year. That was, that was, you guys did go to Greece. Yeah, I, I, I didn't get a chance to talk to Rick about it. How was that? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, yeah, it's so neat to experience new culture and you would love the food. The food's oh, incredible. Bet. And, um, 
the actually the terrain doesn't look that different from Malibu sometimes to me. A Grecian person would probably faint hearing me say that. <laughs> I apologize. It's actually, I mean, you feel the history in, in a way that you don't, you you can sense that the land is much older than mm-hmm. or has been lived lived on longer than than the the land out here. I was watching as we were driving through these little hills. We were on one of the island. We were on two different islands, Paros and Sifnos. And as we were driving along, especially on Sifnos, there are all these um, w- these stone walls that are built up around all the little all the little hills. And I think it must be um, like land preservation to prevent, I don't know if it's to prevent erosion or, or oh. what the purpose is. I need, I need to research this, but I was thinking about the, how old those stone walls must be and the manual labor that yeah. was required to build them. And um, yeah, I mean the people, it, it was just a really amazing place in the Cycladic archite- architecture with mm-hmm. the, it's all white. All mm-hmm. the homes are white with the geometric sh- angles and the flat roofs and the <laughs> cerulean blue doors and shutters. And um, yes, that um, the consistency in the architecture really just makes it so incredibly breathtaking. And the water is... It's like super... Is, like aqua, right? Yes, it's incredible. It kind of changes based on depth, how deep you are, but um, it's gorgeous and it was really fun. It took 28 hours to get there. We went on the scariest ferry ferry ride of our lives. So you had to take a ferry to it? So we took a flight. uh, We had to take a connecting flight into Athens and then it depends on the island that you're going to. You can either take a plane or some some islands you can only get to by ferry, I think. Um, a lot of the islands don't have international airports on them. Mm-hmm. Some of them do, but for the smaller kind of off the beaten path islands, you're often having to take a ferry. But we took a plane into Paros, a very tiny scary plane into Paros <laughs> and then from Paros to Sifnos we took a, a ferry that was the scariest why ferry. was that what was happening because the ferry was at night um so it's like pitch black it was pitch black dark out I think that you can take ferries in the day but for some reason on this particular day that we needed to get from Paros to Sifnos only a night ferry was available uh-huh. it was delayed by one or two hours probably closer to two hours and what happens is you line up and you're waiting and then they corral you into these, it feels like an outdoor pen for like animals. You, <laughs> you kind of feel like, yeah, it's, it's very strange. They, they corral you into these um, rows. Like li- livestock. Kind rows. of like livestock. And then uh-huh. at some point they say, okay, they uh, you know, they lift the gate and, or they open the gate and everyone floods. And so any someone, any semblance of a line that existed up until that point has disappears and everyone's just charging for the boat. But because we were traveling in between two of the smaller islands, you take, it's a larger ferry that travels from Athens to and from Athens, but in between the smaller islands, I think it's typically a smaller ferry or at that, at least that's what we had. And this ferry was docked, but it was rocking side to side Mm. And what I didn't know about these particular islands in Greece is that they're very windy Mm. and it was nighttime and the wind had picked up and the ramps that 
led from the ferry to the dock, I was watching people leave the ferry and then also ascend onto the ferry. And it looked like they were on some weird, sick carnival ride because it was rocking so much. Yeah. yeah, They were bouncing up and down and um, we get on and it's just the most chaotic experience. And the water is kind of sloshing into the boat, splashing into the boat. And sounds like big surf. Yeah, it it was. Yeah. The the waves, the waves were not the, I didn't see big surf when I was in Greece, but the waves crashing against the boat Mm -hmm. were really major. And then you have to just find a place for your suitcase. And Rick just looked at me with like, he said to me, he looked at me, he said, this is fucked up. (laughs) And I just shook my head in agreement, like, yes. And, um, you really had to catch your sea legs because as you're walking down the aisle, Mm -hmm. it's rocking, back and forth and the floor was wet and we were in the bottom of the ferry. So had the thing capsized, this is probably not the best advertisement for going to Greece. Had the thing (laughs) capsized. You guys are just psyching yourselves out at this point. I just wish that you could understand. (laughs) I thought that Rick felt sick, but come to find, he said, I, I don't know. I don't know if he wants me to share this. He was scared. I mean, I think that it's okay to admit that <laughs> yeah, you're that yeah, you were frightened. Yeah. But um, I grew up sailing and on boats, so I was okay. But I there was a very real part of me that was also frightened and kind of just spent the entirety of the 50 minute ride looking at the exit door and just plotting ways of getting out should the boat turn over. And because it was pitch black dark out, when we would hit those big waves and rock, you had no sense of how much you were rocking. You couldn't see outside. So it was tough in that way. And there was a guy who threw up some rose (laughs) from us. And then his wife was almost throwing up from the smell of him. And then the guy in the ferry had to come by and mop it up. And it was a whole thing. It was very traumatic. It was the scariest, one of the scariest things I've ever done. So was this after you guys got off the flight? Was it like flying into a spot and then you got on a ferry? So we flew into Paris. We stayed there for some days okay. and then we took a ferry to a second. Not, it was a ferry to the second island we were staying on. Had you acclimated at this point? Like, Because it's a big time difference, right? Yeah, it's a, I think it's a 10 hour time difference from LA, seven from East Coast. Um by then, yeah, I pretty much acclimated. But I think for the entirety of the trip, I felt a little off. I think we, we stayed about, it was it was like 10 days, but 12 days of travel. Wow. Um, but it's, it's a gorgeous place. The people there, we had a, the most amazing, we stayed at this really cool inn and the innkeeper was just the sweetest man. And the food was so good. And I was actually eating a lot of cheese and dairy there. And didn't have any breakouts. And then as soon as I come back, you know, and I eat raw grass fed cheese here, mm-hmm. I'm getting pimples. It's, it's crazy. I mean, there's it's a, such a, a huge freshness difference. that you get. Such a huge difference. Like there. you start eating food outside of our country. Yeah. You start going to Europe. Yeah. It's so it's much amazing. different. Yeah. I would love to live in Europe one day. Oh, Italy. Uh, yes. Italy. When I'm, I'm an Italy girl for sure. I mean, well, I, I only have 12% Italian in me, but, um, I don't think it matters. I don't think they're going to take your blood sample. Okay. 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 <laughs> no, I mean, that okay. place is just incredible. And yeah. the architect, oh my God, it's just, so it's I can't wait to go back. I can't wait it. to go oh, back. Yeah, I know you've been a lot. I've been once I did Rome, Florence, Venice, but I've been dying to do the Amalfi coast. Mm, yes. My dad's done it. He loves it. Oh my God. It just, the pictures. Yeah. 
It's amazing. Just blow me away. Everything about it. And the way that people dress over there is just, oh, mm. Yeah, just I mean, even the, even the cops, right? So they, what was the uh, fashion designer that did the outfits for the police in Rome? It was, uh, oh. it's not Versace. It's somebody that, that actually designed the police uniform. So they're all like well cut. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. I love how they do things like that in Europe. I, a well-known yeah. designer designed the interior of the train that leaves out of Paris. I'm forgetting the details of it, but my old boss, who's French, told me about it. And yeah, it's, it's super fun, yeah. super romantic. It is. Well, we should probably wrap this up. We've been talking yeah. for a while. This has been fun. I, I've I've loved being on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's always it's good to fun. talk to you. Yeah, I love hanging out with you, man. Same. I love, I love both you and Rick. You guys are my favorite. Oh, I love both you and Gina, and I feel like when I hang out with you guys, because you're from the East Coast, there is a a kinship that mm-hmm. exists. Uh, just an understanding. It, mm-hmm. it, I feel a great sense of comfort and um coziness around you guys so i'm happy i mean we like you both and uh, i love hanging out with rick all the time and and there's just this sense you know what i like about it is that there's no there's no competitiveness which is so fucking nice like we all work in the same business but i'm not doing the same shit you guys are doing yeah and i have nothing but the respect that for the work that you guys do religiously watch your work as it gets released both you and rick and religiously laugh at the work enjoy it um and uh it's just nice it's nice it's nice to hang out with folks that uh just want to hang out and they're not looking for shit no it's just nice one thing i like is i'm probably going to botch this saying but you don't have to blow somebody else's candle out to keep yours lit and Mm. it's this notion that there's a piece of pie for everybody. Everybody can, there's enough to go around. Um, so even if we were making the same stuff. Yeah, what difference does it make? We would support each other. Yeah, fuck yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it is so nice to to feel that um, generosity of, of support in a friendship. And yeah, yeah. that's what you we guys try are to the do. Best. Yeah, well, we love you guys too. That's mm. it. It's a little love ending for the show. Oh. I love you guys. I mean, Rick's kind of weird. He's a weird little midget guy, but it's okay. <laughs> he is uh, he's a magical person. <laughs> and uh, I remember right before we got together, maybe I'll keep the story to myself, though. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a really nice story, but it's one of those things where as soon as you put it out into the world, it doesn't belong to you anymore. It just belongs you to everybody. You don't have to share. Yeah. If, if you, yeah. It, my good friends. I mean, I, we've probably told you this story, but I'll, I'll keep it off the air. But anyway, <laughs> he's magical. I love him. I, uh, yeah, I'm just grateful to be surrounded by awesome people who inspire me and, um, and at the end of the day, like you said, you don't have to be making things to, um, you don't have to be making things. You just have to be doing what makes you happy. That's and, it. Just, um, I'm trying to learn that. If someone said, yeah. you just got to vibrate. You just got to be here and vibrate in your own space and yeah. stop chasing things and yeah. just do what it is that you love. And then the truth is, if you're good at what you do, people will come find you. Exactly. I love that. Yeah, and that's kind of, I'm trying to be in that mantra. I'm not there yet. I still have like that East Coaster that's been behind the scenes going like, the fuck have you done today? I know. It's still there. I know, I know. It's hard to break loose from that, but um, 
but there's so much peace when in those moments when you can and you bring a ton of joy to people through your cooking too. I just want to affirm. I mean, you're such a talented artist. Thank you. In film, but also cooking, and um, it's I like such it. a gift. I like it that you give. Thank you. I you're appreciate welcome. it. All right, well, let's get out of here. We're getting okay, too, okay. We're Everyone's getting too like, guys, stop. <laughs> what are you doing? All right, Hilly. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Today's episode with Hillary in the can. What'd you guys think? She's cool, right? Very talented, very smart. And uh, like I said, when you see her on screen, you gotta go check out her stuff. Make sure you go follow Hillary on Instagram. Let me make sure I get the proper Instagram handle. Um, it's just the Hillary Smith on Instagram. Or you can uh, check out her work on her website, thehillarysmith.com. Um, watch her shorts. <laughs> <laughs> they're really funny and especially when uh, her and rick are on screen together they have such a great chemistry on screen that is going to make you laugh um i'm proud of her she's doing really great work and i'm happy to know her um thank you everybody for listening to today's episode hope you enjoyed it i hope you guys uh, showed some love to our sponsors like i said i've seen you i've seen the super fans that go and they 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 post on our sponsors instagram pages hey we love that you're listening to in love with the process when i hung out with the owner of Jambox, he's like dude we have people writing to us all the time from the podcast like your fans are constantly writing to us and saying that they love the show and they're saying that they love the music that we do it means a lot to us and i was like hell yeah man i felt so happy and proud to be the big dad of all of you all that are listening to the show and being sit, just to sit there and have a beer with this guy who honestly said, I really love your fans. So y'all did it. Thank you. Thank you for, for supporting the show. Thank you for supporting me. Thank you for listening to t uh, today's episode and a uh, bunch more on the way. I'm about to do another trip to the East Coast because I have to go to a wedding. So I'm going to do a pretty crazy adventure out there to do this over the next week. Um, I'll try to do a check-in episode on Thursday for the Thursday stuff. So I'll try to get something in the can while I'm out there. Might happen. Um, but uh, I, you guys have been enjoying those Thursday episodes. I like them. They're stripped down. It's just me and a cell phone. <laughs> really? Yeah. I don't have to set up all the microphones. I don't have to set up all the stuff. And it's a, it's, it's a fun way to give you guys content. I have a big question for everybody out there. I'm toying with the idea of doing new merch for the show. And now I need you guys to respond to this. This is an important thing. I need you guys to give me feedback on this. What would you like? Would you like uh, more storyboarding shirts? Like I did the original run of storyboard shirts where I drew the storyboard and that was in a love of the process shirt. Would you like to see the logo of the show from Zach on a t-shirt? Would you like that? Or would you like me to come up with something new? On Instagram, send me a message right now. Tell me what you'd like. Are you interested in t-shirts? Are you interested in hoodies? Are you interested? The pins are all gone. They're all sold out. The only pins that are left are pins that I have here for guests. 
So, let me know. All right. Well, that's it. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna hold out any longer and let you go do your thing. It's a Tuesday. You guys got a lot of shit to do. You got a big week ahead of you. Don't let me stand in your way. Big shout out to everybody listening to the show. Big shout out to all of the musicians that continue to give us music for the show. Big shout out to Dad, who's listening. Hi, Dad. Um, and uh, that's it. I'm out of here. Love you guys.